Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Today we're here to talk about part 16 of Twin Peaks The Return, No Knock, No Doorbell. My name is Nick, I am joined as always by Dylan. Hi Dylan. Hello. And today we are very happy to be joined by the co-hosts of... One of our favorite Twin Peaks podcasts. We're joined by Aiden and Lindsay from Bickering Peaks. Thanks for being on with us, guys. Hey, hey. thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really happy to have you on. Um, so, generally, when we have guests on the podcast, we like to have them give a little bit of an intro, sort of tell a little bit about who they are and how they came to Twin Peaks and David Lynch and just sort of where they are you know, with the show in general. So do you guys want to give everybody a, a, a short primer on you guys? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was the one who kind of got into Twin Peaks first out of the two of us. Uh, I was one of those precocious youngsters who watched the show as a five-year-old when my parents watched it back in uh, 1990, 1991. Um, mm. And it scared me a lot. So I avoided it for about 20 years after that. Um, was completely unable to watch it and uh, came back to it. I don't even remember how or why I started watching it. Um, oh, I my do. dad, yeah, my dad, dad bought the box set. Yes, for your mom who didn't like the show. Yeah, which is hilarious. It's like a but... Homer bowling ball situation, but yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I, I don't know what made me think I have to watch the show, but I did, mm-hmm. and uh, and ended up falling in love with it and brought Aiden along for the ride. So that was in about. I think 2010 or so. Yeah, right there. And then that's, uh, I kind of took over and was like obsessed with the show and Aiden kind of followed along yep. um, as husbands do. are want to do yeah. sometimes <laughs> with their wives' <laughs> obsessions. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Aiden. Yeah, I, yeah. So I, I watched it for the first time around around then. And uh, I made the, and the, the real interesting part of that is that that was Lindsay's second time that week watching it because <laughs> she'd binged it so hard the first time. Uh, and then she's like, you have to watch the show with me. And then we binged it again. Uh, and that was my first introduction. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. And uh, but then I kind of stepped away. It was just it was another good TV series in my mind. And this is like the start of the kind of the golden age of prestige TV stuff. So I was on to, you know, Mad Men or whatever else was was on. So I wasn't quite as into it as Lindsay was. But uh, then Fire Walk With Me, we watched eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a few then, other Lynch films. Yeah, we got into a few other Lynch movies and stuff, which was really Really helpful and then the show was announced that it was coming back and it kind of reunited reignited everything for us both yeah. um and then we started our podcast and now here we are yep. you know two years later um still obsessed and still <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure it all out with new material now right with 18 new um hours hours of, yeah. of twin peaks mm. which we never thought we were going to get so so yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's so much new material i mean <laughs> the the entirety of season three when you think about it lasts about as long as the entire right. you know who killed laura palmer saga from yeah. uh the first run like seasons one and like that for those first what like seven episodes or so of, of season two yeah 
Like yeah. it just it it is just it adds so much to the show just in terms of of sheer volume. Um, yeah. You said that you said that the show scared you a lot as a child. Do you remember <laughs> specifically what terrified you so much? Yep, <laughs> I remember the specific episode. It was the uh, the I, and I don't know why my parents allowed me to watch this or how I was able to watch this scene, but it was the the reveal of well, there were two. There was the red room, the first red room scene. Um, in episode two, three, however you're counting it, where mm-hmm. Agent Cooper dreams of the Red Room, um, that terrified me. The you know backwards talking and the dancing and everything, but it was the reveal of Leland Palmer as Bob, mm. and I saw that as a five or six year old, and and I just remember seeing um, Ray Wise's face morph into Bob's in the mirror, and it just. Um, it yep, shattered it. me. <laughs> it was it was it was horrifying. Yeah. So it was that that specific moment that really um, I don't know. It it just affected me. Well, yeah, Bob specifically. Bob affects yeah. people. That's yeah. He does. Mm. He has that. Yeah, he has that effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I suspect Bob probably uh, occupied the nightmares of many a young person back in the early nineties. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. Every time I watch that that episode, Lonely Souls, I'm always. I'm always surprised all over again by just how rough it is to watch, yeah. like just how scary it actually is. You know, like it mm. would be, it would be really affecting now if it were on TV, but like in the 1991, I just, it's, I don't know. I can't even fathom it. Like yeah. seeing that yeah. on ABC, it's just, it's yeah, so crazy. Yeah. 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 And it's so disturbing because, you know, that that scene where he kills Maddie, it's not just like, it's not just like he kills her. It's like how he's doing. He's like licking her and like mm. sucking on her chin and doing all this really like disgusting stuff. And it's like, mm. how did this get past the censors? You know? Yeah. Really. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, but yeah, it's incredible. And so, did you guys um, had so did you explore any other Lynch works before coming back to Twin Peaks? Yeah, we we watched a couple of kind of the more popular movies. I would say the the Mulholland Drives and the Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, Wild at Heart. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and and then yeah, like there were other things that we knew about. Like uh, Mulholland Drive was probably the first one because it was the more famous one. And then, um, but we didn't get into like On the Air or I don't even think we watched Inland Empire until no, we watched it right before because I we? I remember when the guy uh, the. I don't remember the Showtime dude uh, was talking about full heroin oh, Lynch. Yes. I'm like, oh no, it's going to be Inland Empire times a thousand. Like right. it's going to be insane. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I remember. So we'd had that reference point. Yeah. Sure, I think we'd watched mm-hmm. most of it uh, by the time uh, the, the return, return came back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I. It's funny. I I actually watched it for the first time in 2010. Also, and then just sort oh, of wow. packed, yeah, and then just sort of packed it away uh until the show came back and that's when mm-hmm. you know i always loved the show a lot um but mm-hmm. when when it came back for the return that that was really when my fandom just like kicked up a whole whole nother notch yeah. and uh <laughs> yeah. i started doing really crazy stuff like starting podcasts about it and whatnot mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um so yeah um so yeah Anybody who's listening to 119 is probably familiar with Bickering Peaks, but um, in case you're not, please check it out. Uh, 
they, they do a really really fantastic <laughs> job discussing all things lynch and all things frost interestingly enough uh you guys are yeah. probably the only podcast i'm aware of that has really done a deep dive into the uh the frostian filmography so that's pretty cool yeah, it, we we thought that was kind of um, a new avenue to explore, too, just because everybody talks about Lynch, but Frost brought so much to to the show. And then obviously with his books that he released um, both before and after The Return came out, I mean, it was clear that he was as invested in this mythology and the story, and it was worth it to kind of dive into it. And we've learned a lot of really interesting things uh, having watched most of his stuff yeah, now at this yeah. point so yeah thank you for the plug that's that's really nice of you <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and we'll be i think we'll be touching on some of mark frost uh some of mark frost books a little bit later particularly when cool. we uh when we talk about audrey um so yeah let's just go ahead and get into it um let's talk about this episode part 16 no knock no doorbell dougie dad Hello, Sonny Jim. Oh, my... Dougie. Hello, Janie. Dougie's back! Oh, oh, I knew it! Janie, would you please go find a doctor right now? Sonny Jim, why don't you go with your mom? Okay. Bushnell, pass me some of those sandwiches. I'm starving. The office just called. The FBI was then looking for you. Perfect. You sure came through this pretty strong. Oh, whoa, what do you think you're doing? I no longer need this IV. Doctor, will you confirm that my vitals are A-OK? I'm leaving. Bushnell, my clothes, please. Cabinet behind you. Dougie, are you sure this is a good idea? It's a good idea. It looks like it's a pretty good idea. I'll prep your release papers. Janie E., please bring the car around front. I'll get dressed and meet you downstairs. Okay, come on, Sonny Jim. Daddy thinks we should get the car around. So, big picture, what do you guys think about this episode? Like, what was your reaction to it as it happened? And with the full scope of the show in mind, what is your view on it now? Dylan, I guess I'll start with you. Sure. So, this episode for me really... I mean, like we've talked about a bunch of times, this uh, last, like this final act of the season really snowballs and every episode seems to compound and get better and better and better. And this one was definitely no exception. Um, And I remember the first time around feeling almost as if it were, there was something amiss. Like it was almost too direct for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was starting, my like centers were going off. Like we spend a whole lot of time with not a lot of um, different characters like the earlier episodes of the season had a whole lot of jumping around and different fragmented stories and we're at a point now by part 16 where it's all kind of coalescing and we spend such a significant amount of time on Cooper and Cooper's awakening that it I got the uh, I got the feeling that this was like too good to be true. Like it was, there was no way we were meant to enjoy this, uh, this much, but looking back on it now, I think you, you actually are meant to enjoy the Cooper that you get for the short time that you, that you get him. Um, and that this is an episode that 
although it eventually is subverted in a lot of ways, I think it really genuinely allows for that kind of classic Twin Peaks fan to come out and really be excited by the direction of the story that like and especially you know watching it for the first time there were at the end of this episode between Cooper and Audrey there was so much potential for what was going to happen and of course none of us had any idea or expected what it was actually going to be but this is when that was an episode that for me really um it really got me it, it got like the juices flowing not that they weren't already but it, it really got me in a state of like edge of my seat i seriously cannot wait another week to find out what happens and then of course i did and that's a story for next week <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yes indeed how about you guys uh yeah i was i actually had a very similar experience to dylan personally lens you can jump in as as needed but uh yeah i remember just being so excited like every moment of this episode just like oh what's happening oh it's so cool this is so great and uh you know really really enjoying those moments especially the cooper moments and then the audrey turn at the end which was just like so twin Peaks, so lynchian um and just seemed to hint at you know a really great conclusion for the following week um which yes didn't happen uh but (laughs) so i was i i was one of those people who really really bit in and, uh, you know, just, just, you know, took the baits uh, full throttle and just, you know, uh, really enjoyed the episode uh, from top to bottom. It was one of my favorites for sure. It really did seem like it, it kept us on the edge of our seats. And um, that's such a cliche thing to say, but it literally was like sitting on the edge of the sofa watching this episode play out. And then and then figuring like at the end with that Audrey twist, which in isolation that night when we were watching it, I think we both realized or turned to each other and we're like, oh my gosh, so Cooper's going to come back and he's going to save Audrey. Yeah. I don't know why that was, mm-hmm. you know, it's like right. the episode was priming us to think this. But when you actually step back and look at it as leading into 17 and 18, um, it's it's the end of that idyllic sort of homecoming Twin Peaks feel that you mentioned. Um and it leads into the weirdness that is 17 and 18. So it it really, um, it's interesting how that final scene has changed. The context surrounding it has changed based on watching it as a cliffhanger versus watching it as something that leads into the finale to the, the finale episodes, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. which I think is, is kind of cool. Um, yeah, in retrospect. In retrospect, at the time... At the time <laughs> We were a little frustrated, but yeah. but also very excited too. Yeah. At the end of sixteen, waiting for what was going to happen in the finale. So, um, but I thought it, at that point in time, I thought this is the best episode, and I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. And uh, I still think that it's one of the highlights, maybe one of the best episodes of um, of the return next to part eight. I think was obviously the highlight, but part sixteen is definitely one of my favorites. Hmm. Yeah, Aiden, you called it bait, oh, which I which I think is is pretty accurate considering <laughs> what we're gonna see in the next couple of episodes here. Um, I like you very much took the bait. <laughs> um, I was, <laughs> uh, I was, I was on cloud nine after this. I mean, because mm. the show by this point had pretty much occupied so much of my brain space that mm. I I was you know. 
I was just on pins and needles the entire time. And I distinctly remember when the credits rolled, I just said to myself, like, I can't believe how good the show is now. Like, it's <laughs> ridiculous how good the show is. Um, but yeah, I I had a different kind of appreciation for it then. Um, but I still, I appreciate it uh, to a similar extent, but in a different way now, knowing that mm-hmm. a lot of what we see is sort of a, a last last hurrah a farewell to that um uh you know old school idyllic twin peaks as as you put it um mm-hmm. but yeah this this episode is just bangers all the way through i mean every scene is just fantastic um yeah. so yeah uh i guess let's get directly into it with the first scene of this episode which is the end of richard um, right so we get this classic Lynchian lost highway Mulholland Drive shot of Mr. C and Richard, first person view, two headlights down a dark road at night. And, you know, this is just Lynch's favorite shot. <laughs> he does this time and time again. And it's always a sign that something bad is probably going to happen. Um yeah. Yeah, so Mr. C and Richard, they're driving wordlessly down this road. I would have loved to have heard any any form of conversation between the two of them, <laughs> uh, just because I can't imagine uh, what, what their banter must have been like through this road trip of theirs. <laughs> um, and yeah, so Mr. C, he pulls over to the side of the road, and he has three coordinates. Uh, two of which match and one of which is different and I think it's really interesting and kind of perverse here the way that Mr. C does a kind of play acting as a father to Richard here Mm -hmm. in this brief moment because he says all this stuff to him like he quizzes him like if you have two coordinates or if you have three coordinates and two of them match and one of them is different which one would you choose? You know, just talking to him like a child. And then he yeah. tells him, you know, you're a very bright young man. Um, you know, which is our first indication that like Mr. C totally knows that, that Richard is his kid. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So he sends Richard up to this rock where he is immediately and violently disintegrated mm-hmm. via electricity. Um, I guess since this is the end of the Richard storyline, Dylan, I'll ask you, what are your what are your parting thoughts for Richard? What do you think we're meant to take away from his storyline? And what do you think we're meant to take away from the way specifically in which he is dispatched here so unceremoniously? Yeah, it, it's in similar fashion to a lot of other bad guys in this show that they are they are uh, dealt with in, like you said, very unceremonious ways. Although I'd say there's something different about, you know, Duncan Todd being shot in the head randomly and now he's just dead versus this sort of death, which does have a bit of a fanfare to it, at least in terms of how, how it's presented to the viewer and how long it's drawn out. So I suspect that with a character so evil as Richard Horn that 
we should, you know, kind of be standing up and cheering and celebrating his death. But I didn't. I didn't feel compelled to do that. And I, not that I had, you know, even compassion or any sort of uh, goodwill towards Richard Horn. It's just the the way that it's presented to you. It's it's not glorious. It's not even a um, like it's 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 not like some big like like you reveled in like he died to some painful death because ultimately it's kind of ambiguous what happens like he's disintegrated into nothing mm-hmm. um but for all we know he could be that could have been him being sucked into some other wormhole into some other realm who the hell knows but as, mm-hmm. as far as his like legacy goes on this show i think that he is he he sort of represents that poisoned uh youth that we see throughout this the return Mm -hmm. and that possibly since he is you know one half audrey horn who we are you know who is somewhat of a hero character who uh almost has like sort of like a uh you know she like an unfulfilled story at least as far as like her season two finale the season two finale goes um she, I think she's unambiguously a good character, whereas Mr. C is unambiguously uh, the the moral antithesis. He is a, he's a horrible, horrible, horrible entity. So Richard had, the, like, I don't know, you get the sense that he had some potential to possibly maybe be a normal human, uh, say, if the Agent Cooper that we all know and love was his father. That's not what mm-hmm. we got. We got this perverted version of him is as you see on the ride up seriously no more than a boy his eyes are wide open doe eyes he's like kind of frightened he obediently follows mr c's orders and i i find myself wondering what mr c's reaction would have been if richard horn said i ain't going up there you fucking crazy like Mm -hmm. what if that blows me (laughs) up like that's stupid why would i do that i almost get the feeling that mr c would have respected that and the reason that he let him walk up there and die is because even though it was his son he was foolish enough to do so which is sort of like Mm -hmm. gives like a backhanded um quality to that you're a very bright young man comment almost like it was Mm -hmm. a um like almost as if mr c kind of had a strong feeling that that was going to happen whether or not he knew it 100 percent. but ultimately the loss of the character of richard horn it's like Sure, it's good. He's a terrible, terrible person who did terrible things and brought a lot of pain to people who didn't deserve it. Uh, but there is a there is a humanity there, and there's also the fact that even though he's gone, like his, like he was a small blight compared to what there actually is. And even though the world uh, may be a tiny bit brighter without him, it's still dark and it's still dangerous, and there's still um, evil out there. And so w- there's not a lot to celebrate, which I find really interesting with the loss of such a such a um, such an antagonist, such a, a hated character. I I totally agree, and and actually it was interesting as you, as you were talking, Dylan. The um, the idea that Richard was this like wide eyed boy, really like I hadn't considered it before, but but Richard seems to be um, he's a big bully until he comes up against someone who's a bigger bully than he is so it happens Mm -hmm. with red where he's kind of put down and and we see him um 
kind of fight back, but only once he's alone in the car and he's not around the, the bigger bully. He's the bigger fish, right. you know? And it's the same with, with Mr. C. Like, this is this is a character who is... Um, Mr. C looms very large over the entire uh, course, the arc of the season. And Richard um, pales in comparison to this supremely evil character, even while he's still one of the more evil human characters that we encounter in Twin Peaks, he still is not as bad as Mr. C. So there is kind of a pathos, I guess, to his death in the sense that um, he's he's this character who thinks he's big and bad and tough and really he's just this pathetic underling, really. Which is so funny because the way that he's been set up in comparison to the other human characters is he's you know he runs down little boys and beats up his grandmother and he's just this this pure evil character and he's yeah still not as bad as the worst character on Twin Peaks you know like it's right. it's kind of fascinating um i can't say that i i wasn't glad that he died because i was i didn't like him i wanted him gone mm-hmm. but it i guess you're right there there is kind of yeah a pathos to it it's it's a little bit a little bit well, and I think sad. It, exactly. And I think a lot of that origin comes from what you mentioned, Dylan, about, uh, you know, he could have been, he is the the product of Cooper and Audrey, you know, the, the one true pairing for a lot of fans <laughs> in, the, in the Twin Peaks in the original seasons. Right. Uh, and, you know, they were the they were going to be the, the couple. And, you know, every fan's fulfillment is like, oh, I wonder what their kids would be like. And we get the chance here. And it's the exact opposite of what you what you would have expected from yeah. those two people. Right. Uh, and so it's it's just this this total inversion of, of fan expectations, um, but also, you know, providing that that lens into um, Mr. C, especially. I think he's really kind of a foil to Mr. C. Like this is what comes of Mr. C is pure well and and mr c and audrey so you look at um richard doesn't have much of either parent but you can definitely see some of the well he has a lot of mr c he does he does have but he also is tinged with this impulsiveness that audrey has right so there's like a mix of the two Mm -hmm. he's not wholly one or the other no but but it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, he's not cold and calculating. Like no. he he's a scared boy, really. Yeah. When he runs over the kid, he just has to escape. You yeah. Know? And 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 most of the things that he does are very impulsive and and not well thought out. So that seems very much like Audrey charging up to One Eye Jacks with no plan in in yep. her mind, right? Exactly. Um, so so there's there's that, but then there's also this like when he's introduced. I think the thing that tipped me off way back in whatever episode that was five or six when we first met Richard Horn and there were strobe lights going off in the background. And I thought he's totally half lodged. Like I knew from the (laughs) beginning that this was Mr. C's kid. I just knew. And, or that he was lodged. As soon as we saw his name, Horn in the credits were like, oh yeah, it's Audrey and Cooper. Totally. (laughs) And so it was like, it was, it was interesting that he, so he has that connection to the lodge. He's, he's very dark and capable of so much evil, but it's tinged with this, lack of calculation that's mm-hmm. really it's a it's a really interesting thing to have and and then of course obviously to have that be the product of cooper and audrey in some sense cooper yeah um mm-hmm. and audrey it's yeah I, I i don't know there's he's a complex character yeah for for being so evil yeah. usually you would not talk about someone this mindlessly evil <laughs> to, to this depth but it is it is interesting within the mm-hmm. the conceit of twin peaks mm-hmm. itself you know mm-hmm 
Yeah, it is interesting because within the narrative, it's it's pretty straightforward. You know, you could just look at him as just this, you know, raging, violent, sociopathic asshole who justifiably meets it meets a terrible end. But I think it's really important to view him within the broader context of the Twin Peaks mythos here, because I do think that ultimately what we're meant to think about with Richard is the fact that he sort of represents a, um, I guess, uh, a poisoning of the well on Mr. Mm -hmm. C's part, you know, by doing this violent and horrible thing to Audrey, uh, he has really ensured that his legacy of pain and cruelty is continuing on through this horrible, Mm -hmm. you know, demon seed child. And um, (laughs) it's, I'm glad you brought up just how pathetic he seems in this these last few scenes here because um you're right it's i would say other than the red scene it's probably the only time we ever see him um you know on his back foot a little bit you know he's right. he's he's very clearly not in control and mm-hmm. he he does appear like just a you know a sad confused little kid basically and yeah. I personally, I believe that he, I believe that he believes that Mr. C is his father, you know, just based on mm-hmm. what we saw from the previous episode where he says, oh, you know, my mom had a picture of you and yeah. this, this and that. Um, and just the way that he's so obedient towards Mr. C, it's almost like mm-hmm. he saw this opportunity for the first time in his life to sort of please his father i guess you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. um so in that regard uh it is it is kind of sad um Mm -hmm. not that not that losing richard is sad because as we've established uh he is the absolute worst um (laughs) you know but but there is um there is there is a pathos to it and yeah yeah it's yeah he he goes through the entire show he he never he never picks on someone his own size, I guess you could say. Like right. any like all his cruelty is directed at women, you know, a child, his grandmother, and yeah. it is very telling that anytime he comes up against uh anybody with any sort of um competency, he is just totally diminished. Yeah. You know, he's he completely crumbles. And mm-hmm. um yeah, and boy you know the whole business with him being a product of rape from mr c and audrey is probably the probably the blackest nastiest move that lynch and frost pulled in this series you know because like you mentioned it was such a big thing you know everybody wanted to see cooper and audrey Mm -hmm. get together it's like well oh you guys are shipping these characters well how, how about this how about this instead yeah. and it really is you know i i um i i generally don't think that lynch and frost are as antagonistic towards the audience as a lot of people do throughout the season but that to me is really just like uh it's as close as we get to a sort of thumbing their noses at like the you know the old school conventional twin peaks fandom as you get in the season it's um yeah. you know it's it's been it's been controversial obviously um and it sure. does color it you know it does color the way that um you view 
those early seasons in my opinion like it's yeah. just yeah. you know one of the really complicated legacies of this season in particular is the way that it sort of makes you conflate Mr. C and Cooper in your mind so yeah. when I watch when I watch the earlier seasons now it's like when I see Kyle it, it's it's impossible for me not to think about you know Mr. C a little bit and when I see yeah. him right. fl- flirting with Audrey it's impossible for me not to think about the end point of, yeah. of that relationship yeah. you know and it's I, I think it even you know we've we haven't done enough praising of Kyle McLaughlin on the show lately uh, <laughs> and I just want to say like I don't, I don't know about you guys but now that I've seen him as Mr. C like anytime I see an interview with him I just I, I can't <laughs> help there's just like I, I just I see the, yeah. the little Mr. C-ness in his eyes you know what I mean yeah like I yeah. never saw I never saw it before but now when I watch an interview with him or something, I just, I see that little bit of, uh, little bit of darkness. Now, obviously Kyle is, um, you know, he's a very, <laughs> uh, polar opposite sort of person for Mr. C, but I just think it's interesting how once you've seen somebody, uh, inhabit, a, a persona like this, you, you just, mm. you can't really shake it off. So anyways, no, that was, not at all. that got a little bit off track, but, um. Well, and I think it's interesting, two points that you just brought up and I'll just jump on to. Uh, one is, uh, I thought uh, Eamon Farron, I think is his name, yeah. the guy who played, he did a great job as as uh, Richard yeah. to, to make him like pure evil, but then also, you know, the doughy soft teenage boy yeah. that he is. Uh, you know, like I thought he did a really great job of, of uh, for, I think he's a really good actor. Like mm-hmm. he was really impressive in this one. Um, but also, and this is just something I don't know if, I don't think he mentioned, uh, but it was, this is when we get the confirmation that Cooper knows uh, Richard is his son at the very end yeah. of the scene. right? Yeah. And before this point, it had been kind of conjecture and stuff. So um, when he says, you know, goodbye, my son or whatever the line yeah. is, like that was, it took until that point for a lot of people to kind of know that. And I think like, like you and I said, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, as soon as we saw his name was Horn, we're like, yeah, that's definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, to I accept thought that was, it, I would say, I think the people yeah, yeah, they yeah, just didn't really want to accept it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, it was kind of an interesting litmus test, similar to what we'll get to with Diane in a minute, uh, you know, like the whole thing of rape in the, in the show is, is so, um, I don't know, herring, I guess, that a lot of people just didn't want to accept that bubbly little mm. Twin Peaks yeah. could be about that, you know, but at the show, at the heart of the show was always rape, you know? So it's it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, different people took different things from and the, the show the fact, the way. And the fact that you could, the, the breadcrumbs were there from so early on and so many people refused to believe it until Mr. C, who is this embodiment of pure evil, says goodbye my son and like oh well okay i guess it must be true right like you can't (laughs) buy it until a guy like mr c says it someone with that authority says it you know or confirms it for you yeah as a litmus test i guess Aiden says that's a that's a good way of putting it so um to really force that issue to become front and center when it it was always there i mean the story starts with a woman you know wrapped in plastic after having been raped and murdered um that's what the show was always about, but people really willingly or not, you know, ignored that yep. for a lot of, for a lot of the years that this has been a popular show. It was a show about coffee and cherry pie, but no, it wasn't. It was about rape and murder. So yep. like to, mm-hmm. for, for the return to really bring it back to that in with Audrey and Diane's storylines, I thought was a really powerful move. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, a thing I think that is really like, 
maybe overlooked because there's so much like conjecture, like we've said before about Mr. C and or about Cooper and Audrey in the original run. And there's all the, yeah. the, you know, Laura Flynn Boyle caused them to <laughs> break up and or like yeah. break, like cause them to like change the writing. But I think it's pretty important that the character of Cooper, when Audrey is naked in his bed says like, look, this isn't right. Like, this yeah. this isn't right for me. I'm an I'm a, an adult. You're a teenager. Uh, it's wrong. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, people have taken exception to that or whatever, and still to this day think that they should have been the the power couple. But I think it's important to note that the quote unquote good Cooper that we see acknowledges the wrongness of that because he is yeah. in a position of power, and this is a young vulnerable girl. And mm-hmm. the version of Cooper that would follow through with that is Mr. C, who takes yes. full advantage of a girl in her most vulnerable state possible. She's mm-hmm. in a coma. And mm-hmm. the product of it is a character named Richard. And I think that that's yeah. significant because the fusion Cooper that we end up with in the finale, his name is yeah. Richard. And he is yeah. this sort of, and I don't think, I know there's a lot of double naming conventions, but I think that that's an important one, that his offspring mm-hmm. has the same name as this alternate version of him that is existing mm-hmm. somewhere between the poles of Mr. C and Agent Cooper. And you can yeah. maybe look at like Audrey as almost like a, I don't know if it's the right word, but like a surrogate for Cooper because she is this young uh, an innocent uh, quasi detective like that sort of and mm-hmm. that's what she wants to be she wants to she idolizes mm-hmm. agent cooper at the end of all that probably for being um, a good enough man to acknowledge right and wrong when she was you mm-hmm. know uh, when she was infatuated with him and that character gets taken advantage of by the antithesis of mr c and uh, of cooper mr c and it produces this uh i'm almost like a a a mirror image of of maybe maybe not a mirror image but i just think it's really interesting that that was the character or that that was the name that we get for for cooper and we get it in the very first episode uh richard and linda so yeah i don't know I, i i've found it really like this is like you can throw away like the like the whole Audrey and Cooper thing if you want to, but I think it's really pertinent and relevant to a lot of the material we see in the return, even if it's not obvious. Yeah, absolutely, wonderful point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the last last thing about this is that very rarely in the show do Lynch and Frost go out of their way to make something explicit, and I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that they really made a point of leaving zero doubt whatsoever that, yeah. you know, that Richard is a product of, of this horrible act. And yeah. you're right. I mean, the the show from the very beginning has also been pretty explicitly about the ripple effects of uh, sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that, that was something that Lynch reminded everyone to uh largely to their discomfort in firewalk with me um and it's just i think it's um i think it's gutsy that they continue to remind people that at at the heart this show really is about pain and it's about trauma specifically you know the trauma of of a young girl um Mm -hmm. you know for all the other things it is 
it all stems from you know this one this one horrible act and mm-hmm. um you know it's 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 depressing but i also think that it's one of the things that gives the show real weightiness you know i think it's you know the fact that it always has consistently taken these themes seriously and they're not just plot points you know they're not yeah. just mm-hmm. they're not just catalysts for this show about you know uh a detective and 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 his job and his mystery you know it's yeah. it is uh mm-hmm. it is it is what the show is about consistently yeah so yeah so goodbye richard uh we won't miss you Um, so yeah i guess the last thing that happens here is that mr c sends the infamous all text to diane right uh with the the little smiley face with the nose there um and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a bit but first let's head to las vegas and all the stuff here with Lancelot Court and the hospital is sort of intercut, but we're just going to talk about them as sort of separate blocks here for the the, the sake of simplicity. Mm-hmm. So outside of Dougie's house here, we see Hutch and Chantal. They've made the road trip all the way down from South Dakota here to Las Vegas. They're in their van and they're wearing painter's outfits for some reason. Not totally sure what that's about. <laughs> um, Chantal is just, you know, she's doing her Chantal thing. She's she's munching away on her chips. She's in a in a near panic about the fact that it's her last bag. Um, and they're just sort of waiting for Dougie. You know, the, obviously they've they've got the hit out on him for Mister C, and uh, the street immediately becomes a circus. Because uh, everybody starts showing up. We've got uh, the FBI agents, Headley and Wilson. Uh, We get one last totally superfluous uh, Wilson moment here where Headley calls him a son of a bitch for no reason. Uh, That's fun. Uh, The Mitchum brothers show up with Candy, Mandy, and Sandy to stock Dougie's fridge because, as we've established, Dougie is just... He is golden to them now like he he gave them their 30 million dollars they could not possibly love dougie more they're gonna do everything possible for dougie jones and the jones family at this point so added to the mix is a polish accountant who is a really really odd (laughs) deus ex machina to throw in the middle of this whole thing uh he has a bit of a parking dispute with hutch and chantal which gets resolved by first Chantal shooting at him and then him going to his trunk and just whipping out an Uzi and just completely unloading the clip into their van, killing Hutch and Chantal. This was like, I was just, I was just tickled by this whole thing because (laughs) it is such a non Lynch like tone for this scene. I feel like Mm. it, like it's for me, for me, it was something more, uh, more akin to like a Coen Brothers type thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know. It, obviously, a Tarantino uh, that that comparison has been made a lot, but just the sort of almost whimsical, ironic violence 
uh, struck me as being very Coen Brothers-y, and that's not really a mode that I associate Lynch with at all. I thought it was fascinating that he chose to end these characters this way, right. and that he did so with such uh, proficiency. Like, this is just such a well-done scene, and I just love all the little touches, you know, like the van slowly rolling down the, <laughs> the road here for a long time until it hits a telephone pole or whatever. This is just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's a delightful scene. And of course, uh, it's punctuated by uh, one of the great comedy moments of the season. Uh, what the fuck kind of neighborhood is this? People are under a lot of stress, Bradley. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Huge laugh from me. Uh, oh, yeah. first time around it's just brilliant timing <laughs> um so yeah what do you what do you guys what do you guys make of this whole insane ridiculous sequence that goes down here i think it's it's a bit of like a uh i think it's frostian if we can call it that like it has the, mm. a bit of that mark frost um like kind of like quality i don't know of like i just can't think of, or stop thinking of him going out of his way to say that the return features a lot of elements uh inspired by the economic collapse of 2008 and um Mm -hmm. although this is like we said kind of like a whimsical uh approach to to two characters getting killed it it does sort of have like it's it's a comedic underscoring of this idea that like hey man uh, people are people are really are under a lot of stress. Like it takes a lot to live in one of these houses, and you might have had the worst day ever, and now someone's parked in front of your driveway, vaguely, <laughs> and you. It's just that's where we're at now. <laughs> you might just have to yeah. pull out an Uzi to get them to move. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I I I'm also appreciative of the fact that this is the second enigmatic accountant that we uh, encounter. However, at least this one does something mm. to deserve yes. deserve yes. his renown um whereas the other one just weirded me out enough for me to make him the the podcast art <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah uh, i i think that like this has maybe like the less of a lynchian quality perhaps because it was mark frost's idea at least that's my my take on it mm-hmm. yeah no that totally makes sense and I, yeah the coen brothers uh Angle. I, I hadn't considered that because it does. It feels a little Tarantino, but you're right. It has the more of the humor and the uh, the not not so much a knowing wink the way Tarantino does it, but it's more of like a, ironic. Yeah, and it, it's yeah. pulling you along. It's like mm-hmm. we know what we're both going for for mm-hmm. this thing. Uh, and yeah, so it it was hilarious. It was so well done, and like it was so bloody and like disturbing. Mm-hmm. And it was just like yeah, again, you know, Lynch is not into. Um, gore and and you know multiple body shots and the, you know Hutch holding on to the railing while he gets shot like fifty times like it's just so over the top <laughs> that's that's not typical yeah um, but it somehow worked here it was just like yeah okay this is this is an odd little scene and these bad people are getting their their comeuppance again it, well, that's the thing like yeah. there's there was really no other way for Hutch and Chantal to meet their end you know they weren't going to ride off into the sunset together right exactly. like this they, they had they had to have some kind of evil visited upon them that that equaled the evil that they were visiting upon others and as much as I I really did enjoy uh their They're them together the two of them together yeah. their scenes were amazing um I thought they they were brilliantly cast and every scene that they were in was was like a little gem 
Because it was like these little like slices of life. Like they're yeah. they're sitting there eating their Wendy's or whatever it was, <laughs> and her eating the Cheetos and talking and about pulling out a sniper rifle and killing a, a warden. Like yeah, it was, like, it, it was it was very surreal, but also uh, it was surreal because it was rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and and I I really appreciated that, but there was no other way for their storyline to end except in a hail of gunfire. It just was so funny that it happened on Lancelot Court in plain view of like two inept FBI agents and <laughs> these gangsters in their malls who are basically like, you know, big tough guys we think, but they're actually teddy bears with hearts of gold, and like none of them are going to stop this gunfight between an accountant and some people dressed <laughs> as painters. Like right. it was so right. bizarre. I just yeah, I I can't say enough. Even though how, they're the gangsters, fun the scene is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah, it it was it was a really great scene. I loved it. Hmm. What are Lynch and Frost trying to say about accountants? I wonder in this show. <laughs> Are they are is are they intimating that accountants are just like the dark secret shadow force behind all the evils of the world here? Is that what they're they is that what they're getting at? Yeah, I, I think they, so. I know I think a few. So. They're uh <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. We'll hey listen, no my more. mom's an accountant, buddy. <laughs> um, no comments. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just it's funny because like there's no reason that this guy needs to be an accountant whatsoever. <laughs> like he doesn't do any no. accounting. Um, yeah, he doesn't need to be Polish either, but here we are. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's that oddly are, specific character thing that they've that they've given yeah, him, right? Yeah. So <laughs> that just makes it more funny, I think. Yeah, well that's the thing, like when it's yeah. They just pick two funny things, I guess, and combine them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uzis yeah. and accountants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you know, Poland, maybe that's just uh just a, a leftover obsession from Inland Empire, who knows? Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. just He's got Poland on the mind. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's it for Hutch and Chantal. <laughs> um, like we said, the 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 two gangsters and the FBI just sort of sit by and watch this whole scene unfurl <laughs> without intervening really until yeah. until it's all over. Until yeah. the accountant has sufficiently unloaded <laughs> his entire Uzi into the van. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an Uzi. That's, that's the other thing. It's an Uzi. Yeah. Like I just can't get over that. It's sorry. Yeah, it's because very 90s not just street crime ish. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> not just anybody has an Uzi. It's not even the type of gun that like your average American gun owner would have. You know, it's yeah. like you know he was into some deep shit. Especially if he <laughs> yeah. just had it stashed in away Poland. in his trunk. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. Like, what is this accountant up to? Like, it's... it's a really rough Anyways. part of Las Vegas. Yeah. He's, wow. he's, <laughs> yeah. he's working. Yeah. In, like... <laughs> Maybe it was a uh, Pulp Fiction reference. Yeah. It's the only other instance of an yeah. Uzi I can think of. Right. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that does it uh, with pretty much everything that happens here on Lancelot Court. And while we're in Vegas, let's go to the hospital where uh, some stuff happens. I guess you could yeah, say not, not some not some important stuff. Um, just stuff. I don't just know. Stuff happens. Maybe we should. Just, yeah, maybe we should just skip over this yeah, part. Yeah, it's really yeah, not yeah, that important. Not yeah, I'm kind of in a rush. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I love this little bit of trolling here uh, at the very outset of this scene when Janie E says, "Well." When people go into a coma, they can stay there for years. Uh, <laughs> I loved that. That was actually 
that actually made me think that there was a possibility that Cooper might wake up here just because it is such an obvious mm-hmm. misdirect, you know? It's like, oh, well, they're they're playing with this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like the way that the show had gone, if they had said, oh, he should be waking up any second now, like, I would have thought that maybe we just weren't going to get Cooper at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, it was just like some heavy reverse psychology happening mm-hmm. here. Um, so, yeah, everybody shows up to uh, pay their respects to Dougie, uh, who's in a coma, uh, of course, after being electrocuted in the, in the last episode. Uh, the Mitchin mm-hmm. brothers are there. They got flowers. Candy, Mandy, and Sandy show up with finger sandwiches. Pretty much everybody in Dougie's orbit shows up to pay him respects, like he's the Godfather or something, which is yeah. hilarious. Uh, and eventually, Bushnell is alone with Dougie, and he receives a call from mm. Phil Bisbee saying that, well, the FBI is looking for Dougie. Um, which, you know, surprises Bushnell to a degree, mm-hmm. you know, his, his, his reaction is basically like, oh, well, what, what has Dougie gotten himself into now? Uh, mm-hmm. and he hears a mysterious hum that we have heard before yes. in the great Northern, uh, with the Ben and Beverly scenes. And also we see James sort of chase after it, uh, a mm-hmm. couple episodes ago. Right. And um, I I really associate this sound with Mike. Um, obviously, no concrete answer, but just given that Mike seems to be the, the common linkage between all of these moments, you know, we see in the next episode that Mike is sort of looming in the basement of the Great Northern when Cooper goes to meet him and uses his 315 room key and all that. And then he shows up here in the chair right mm-hmm. next to Dougie. Yeah. So to me, it seemed like Mike was using the hum like as an intentional distraction for Bushnell just to get him out of the room so he could do all his, his Mike stuff. What do you, what do you guys right. think about it? I'd co-sign that. I, I, he's the only other character that is indirectly associated with it. Uh, plus, the more I watch the show, the more I feel like Mike's doing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff um in, in terms of like uh I mean we could talk forever about this but I have my new theory that he's the one who was pretending to be Philip Jeffries um at least to Ray Monroe so right. I I yeah I've I've since like seen um or since since rewatching the the series like every time I hear that hum He's really the only character that pops into my head. I guess the only question is if he's doing it intentionally or if it's just a byproduct of, you know, Red Room interaction with the real world, right? right. Because um, it's, uh, we don't actually see Mike in any of the scenes with Ben and Beverly, but we can we can assume that, that you know, he's there yeah. or that there's some kind of, um, and I can't remember if this is, from some official source or if this is just a fan theory, but I remember conversations at some point about um, the Great Northern being like over top of a nexus for the for the lodges or something mm-hmm. or the, the, the falls themselves were some kind of connection point between the lodge and the real world. So, you know, is that feeding, if that's true, and I, I, like I said, I can't remember where I heard that or where that came from. It's been bothering me for about a year and a half now. But um, 
if that's the case, then uh, is that just like a residual sound that comes out when the veil between the worlds is weak or something like that? I think either way, it's clear that it's it's some kind of um, it's an indicator that 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 connection is happening or that something is trying to communicate across, mm-hmm. you know, between two worlds, so to speak. Right. Yep. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. I, yeah. I don't yeah. know. As far as as far as the Great Northern being a nexus point, um, I don't know. It, it sounds vaguely familiar now that you're mentioning it, but it, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just something that uh, I don't I don't know. It, it sounds like something that could be from one of Frost books or something like that, but I don't really yeah, like I thought it, I thought it was in the access guide or something, but it's not. I, at least as far as I can remember, so mm-hmm. I I'm not sure. It maybe I just made it, made, it made this up. <laughs> no, <I'm> not, <laughs> but other people seem to remember it too. Well, I so. remember the the original script for the final episode before Lynch rewrote it oh. was uh, when they go through the red the red curtains. the The Black Lodge mm-hmm. was going to be the actual yeah. Northern Lodge, right? The so Great yeah. the Great Northern. So it was going to be you know the two were always yeah. I think yeah, yeah I think yeah I think the original idea was that they're always connected in some way, mm-hmm. but. Uh, like it makes a certain amount of sense that that the Great Northern would would yeah. you know be the yeah. place that Cooper would access to go sure. meet yeah. Mike course, absolutely yeah. Yeah. but yeah, yeah this whole mm-hmm. this whole thing with Mike uh, it's it's curious that it's distracting that's the important part of this scene is that it's distracting Bushnell and getting him out of the room so it does seem like it is um, intentional yeah for Mike mm-hmm. to be t- using that to lure him away so that they can have their their little tete tete yeah yeah yep. Yep, their little powwow there. And, yeah, and another another point about the Great Northern too is that, and that's where Cooper first meets the giant, who we can assume Correct. is the fireman. And right, yeah. uh, I think there's a lot of evidence pointing to, or at least circumstantial evidence pointing that the fireman and Mike seem to be working at least partially together. So it would make right. sense to me that uh, Mike would have set up shop there. But we do also yeah. see. Yeah. Um, the the old man there who I might be wrong about this but do we like the old the old waiter guy does he yeah. show up above the convenience store mm-hmm. or am I making that up I feel like I, he is in the convenience mm-hmm. store in fire walk with me right fire walk with me. yeah I think Wait, he is, he is? Isn't he? right or was he supposed to be in there was he supposed to be there I think maybe in one of the extended scenes I, just, I don't remember yeah <laughs> see my memory's huh. getting fuzzy this is the they're huh. working against me the lodge forces <laughs> I'm beginning to remember <laughs> <laughs> wow I don't I don't remember that but now I'm now I'm questioning everything I don't know maybe you guys are right I guess we'll <laughs> we'll find out later yeah. but well, point being there's just always um, since the first season there has been yeah. lodginess to the great northern yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the Great Northern is not a normal place. Um, you know, the, these these theories are nice and all, but we all know it's Josie. It's obviously that's, that's really what it is. <laughs> Let me out. Clearly. <laughs> yep. Um. So. Yeah, Cooper wakes up. Uh. So. This was probably. Uh, Man, I, I can't honestly recall having another feeling like this watching TV when mm. Cooper woke up. Just because mm. it was such an incredible journey to get to this point. Mm. And, you know, the central question of the show in a lot of ways was, well, where is Cooper? When's he going to wake up? 
And I, I thought that the way that they handled this was absolutely pitch perfect. Like mm-hmm. they could not have done this any better, you know, and just with when falling kicks in and everything like that, it just, it got me so good. I was mm-hmm. very emotional during this moment. I'll say that it was just, um, yeah. I was more emotional than I, I thought I would be to see it just because, you know, when Cooper shows up, as Cooper in the show, it's like someone dropped a live wire into right. it. You know, he's so in command. He's so in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. You know, he's he's mm-hmm. ordering the sandwiches and he's calling the nurse in. And he's, you know, he's, he knows exactly what he wants to do. And, um, you know, I I know that in a lot of ways this moment here with him waking up was kind of a fake out and mm-hmm. it was uh, a, a bit of a ruse. It was uh, a bit of a, um, a bit of a false promise uh, in a way mm-hmm. that we were going to get this version of Cooper throughout the remainder of the show. But, you know, with hindsight, the way that I look at it now is I, I really think that this is, the one moment in which Lynch is sort of acknowledging to us, like, Hey, I know that I've been withholding this character from you guys throughout this entire season. And that, you know, in a lot of ways, this season was about subverting expectations, but you know, I, I just want you to know, like, I'm going to give this character such a lavish introduction that it's going to, it's going to let you guys know that, you know, I love Cooper as well. And that, you know, I'm not doing this because, you know, just to be a jerk, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, we're going to go pretty far away from all of this in the very near future and things are going to get really dark and strange. And, you know, the next couple of episodes are going to be very, very questioning. You know, it's going to be largely an interrogation about, you know, this idea of an Agent Cooper and so on and so forth, so forth. But, I really like the fact that Lynch just decided to, to you know, throw us all a bone here and, and give this give us this really great moment. I don't know. How do you guys feel about it? Very similar. Yeah. Oh, you go ahead, Lindsay. No. Uh. Yeah. It's that's that's a perfect way of of summing it up. Is that it? It did feel like a little bit like um, fan service. That isn't even the full. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. doesn't really encompass it, but because it felt appropriate. Um, and fan service mm-hmm. often doesn't, yeah. but this felt appropriate, even though we know that it, it was a bit of a fake out. Um, it gave everybody who wanted to see Kyle McLaughlin as Agent Cooper. We we got that, right? Even if it was only for half an episode in total or whatever, mm-hmm. we still got that. And that was really, mm-hmm. I think, kind of special. And for it to happen in this episode, which had so many um, high points and revelations for fans, it felt even more appropriate that it took place here and not in part three as people thought it might or um part 15 as people thought it might like it felt very um very appropriate that's yeah. just the only word to yeah and, and i think a lot of that just is Tom lachlan just you know he inhabits that character so perfectly mm-hmm. that the ins- i mean it's literally he pulls the tube out and you knew you're yeah. like yep. this is cooper you didn't even need to mm-hmm. hear him talk and that's an amazing feat on his behalf because uh, and it's part of part of it's because you know the character was so well written to start. But I mean, you go back to the very first introduction of Cooper and you know the pilot, 
to this, it's the same guy. Yeah. And <laughs> it's 25 years later and it's the same dude. And you know that right away. And that's an amazing feat all around. Like, I mean, that's Lynch's direction. That's uh, how it's filmed. That's how he acts. It's the music in this case. You yeah. know, it's it's literally everything coming together to create this character that's so iconic and so identifiable that, um, that yeah, it can have that effect on you. That mm-hmm. of, you know, when we watched it, we were just like, oh, my God, it's really happening. Mm-hmm. Like, we were just totally. Like a homecoming out. or something. Like, yeah. It really yeah. felt mm-hmm. like it was, you know, this is what we were building towards. Yeah. And and yeah, I I did the same thing. I bit in so hard. Just I was like, yes, he's gonna make everything perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I I actually clapped when he did the I have the FBI thing. It's embarrassing, right? but yeah. I did. I actually, it was just like, holy shit! Like you guys could not have done this any better. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I I was up until part fifteen. I was pretty thoroughly convinced we weren't gonna get. Uh, agent cooper back uh and i was content with that almost from a from like a semi-adversarial perspective of all of the all of the negative comments i read about people trashing the show because it didn't pander to what they had hoped it would be and they didn't get 18 hours of agent cooper you know sleuthing and being sly and doing all that stuff so i kind of just i and i also like grew to really love the dougie character so right. so I was almost like on the other side of the fence where I, I felt like I would be immune to, to any of the feels of the old Twin Peaks. And even though you got a little bit, you, know, you got a little bit of it, we got it with Ed and Norma and I loved that. And, and, you know, I, I, like we talked about Nick way back, I, I, I actually was a little bit moved by the Bobby Briggs seeing the, the photo of Lara. Um, right. Uh, but I had felt like going into this, like, okay you're like what's gonna happen like what are we really gonna get cooper back and if we do that's gotta have some catch which i guess i wasn't wrong but i wasn't expecting (laughs) to have a um a visceral reaction to it and then Mm -hmm. uh it happened and i completely did Mm -hmm. i just totally felt like a or fell for it like a sucker and um Mm -hmm. in a good way like in a and like i just was gushing over it and i think it's partially because i had watched uh, I had watched the original run, I think, for the first time in 2012, and I, I maybe rewatched okay. it once. But um, I sort of got when when Lynch walked away from season three in his pr- production, I kind of like yep. cautiously backed myself away from excitement because I was like, oh god, this could possibly never happen. And in the meantime, right. started watching all of uh, or a lot of of his filmography and really started to love uh the more surreal aspects of it like i I felt totally Mm -hmm. in love with mulholland drive so i was Mm -hmm. like really on board with this very dark incarnation of twin peaks that we were getting with season three so i was in no rush to have things return to form but when they did holy shit i was just (laughs) i heard falling and my heart just like swelled i was so happy Mm -hmm. and um I personally, I, I love that we got a small dose of it because it really does stick in my mind as like this moment, this like kind of very sweet moment that you cherish because it's the one that you get and or mm-hmm. one of the few that you get. And I don't know that it would have had as much of an effect on me if it was good old fashioned Cooper comes back to save the day. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that's just my take mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think you, you raised a really good point about this being the end of Dougie. I think Dougie was, you know, 
an interesting character and an interesting take on the whole Cooper personality. You know, like yeah. like Mr. C, he's he's kind of an aspect of Cooper um, that we get a hint at here, and we see. <laughs> it's kind of hard. I mean, I I didn't like the Dougie storyline. I'll just come out and say it. Uh, and I just mostly because he was such a blank canvas for so mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, it, it helped the the moments when he did take decisive action, and but it was never really clear whether he was just like a dumbed down Cooper, or because like he had like the investigative skills and I felt like know. he had the instinct, like the yeah. gut instinct that Cooper had. And that was he was what... just it was just numb, like the exterior yeah. was kind of numbed down, which is fine, I guess. But I mean, there was also like the whole like family life part yes. of it, like like he 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 loved Janie and and Sunny Jim so much. Um, you know, there's that scene of him crying when he looks at Sunny Jim and. Uh, you know, obviously that stuck with Cooper because he gives up his hair to Mike to create another doppelganger, um, or a, a telpa or, or whatever. whatever it is. Um, and you know, and so that's that's obviously a part of that Cooper that we knew and loved, and it's possibly also a part of the Richard character at the end. Maybe like it's it's really, I, I mean, Dougie was actually kind of when I was watching it, I was not interested in Dougie at all. Um, but in retrospect, Dougie was, was an important character in, yeah. in the story as a whole, I think. Yeah. And you're, this is a bit of fan service, you know, let's be honest. It is, mm-hmm. it is totally fan service, but you know what, if there is any show in history that has earned the right to do fan service, <laughs> it's season three of twin peaks. I oh, mean, sure. it was, I mean, it was, it took so long to get here, you know? And it's just like, yeah, Every every bit of fan service that they get us was pulled off so well. Like like this, the Ed and Norma stuff. Like put it in my veins. Mm-hmm. Like it's so good. Yeah. It's so <laughs> unbelievably good. You know, like yeah. I will hang on to those moments. You yeah. know, for forever. It's just um, yeah. it's brilliant. And it, it wouldn't. You know, we wouldn't have gotten a moment like this. It wouldn't have meant the same thing if if it had happened. Like. You know, episode three Immediately. or four, or what have you? You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, and and then the fact that it that it also has that that dark twist to it that we don't realize until after the fact. In retrospect, after we've seen the finale, we we realize that Audrey's dance isn't what we think, and um, Cooper's mm. return isn't what we think. There's something very Lynchian about that, and very Twin Peaksy about that too. So it's in a sense, even when the fan service ends up being not real or not. Um, what we think it is, it's still fan service because it's giving us that pixie vibe that we want. And I think that's t- that shows how talented and how tuned into the story uh, Lynch and Frost both were when they were when they were making this. They knew exactly what they were doing. They played us all like fiddles. Um, mm-hmm. It was brilliant. Yeah. 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 Just. Yeah, we were we were in very very capable hands uh, oh, yeah. throughout this season. It's mm-hmm. like I think we pretty much felt all the ways in which they they intended us to feel throughout this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess getting to the point that this reveal and this version of Cooper is a bit of a um, a bit of a fake out. I think our first clue that that was the case probably comes immediately after he wakes up and he has this interaction with Mike where he tells Mike that, you know, he needs him to, to make another one, another tulpa, we presume. And then he and Mike proceed to reach through the lodge spaces and interact with one another. Like Mike hands him the owl cave ring 
and Cooper hands him like a few strands of hair. And I didn't really think about the significance of that too much at the time, just because I was so like, holy shit, Cooper's back. But that is a very odd thing. Like, you're not supposed to be able to do that, you know? Like, we've never really seen people interact so seamlessly with the lodge base to the degree that they're literally, like, they're literally physically passing objects through it in that way. And that probably... Should have been a, a huge red flag that Cooper is probably less of a human as we would we would think of him, and more of a a spirit or an entity more in line with Mike or the fireman, right? Yeah, I think it's significant that the only other time we see this is in Fire Walk with Me, where the arm reaches through the red room to give the ring to Laura in her I believe it's in her dream or she's in her bed and she yeah. and she yeah. she wakes up with it in her hand sees it screams and then it's gone so mm-hmm. um and Laura I think at that point was sort of an unwilling participant in this whole game but however she she was like Cooper is at this point totally ingratiated in in the lodge space and and touched by that so like we Mm -hmm. like we've mentioned before once characters are touched by that they seem to be stuck with it for life so and as we also kind of learned way way early on in in episode three of season one the arm and mike have a a very intimate relationship and it almost seems Mm -hmm. like the arm is like like an aspect of Mike in some way. Mike's missing an arm. This dude is called the arm. They seem to be working in partnership together, but it's not entirely clear in what terms. Um, But the, yeah, I think you're, you're on point, Nick, that the Cooper we're seeing is, um, I mean, for one thing, he entered into this reality through uh, an electrical socket and uh, yeah. inhabited the the mm-hmm. shitty clothes of some guy who disappeared <laughs> into um, the Black Lodge. But yeah, yeah he's he's um, most certainly and clearly uh, ha- has been trying to carry out some sort of plan the entire time as as Dougie. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I find it really fascinating that we're to believe now that that cooper or at least that consciousness or that um that version of him was present in the dougie character although hamstrung by whatever condition he was in uh he has the memories and he appreciates bushnell and he um like we said feels love for for janie e and sunny jim it's so um like like you're saying like right off the bat there's tons of clues that this isn't just agent cooper like oh hey guys i'm back now uh what can i help you with it's it's very much (laughs) it's very much this um this he he has taken on a completely different role in terms of um his being he is not just some Mm -hmm. man of this earth now he is a, a part of some grand scheme that we can assume is taking place over multiple iterations of time and yeah um I think unambiguously we can we can say that this Cooper is sort of 
seems to be going in loops. But um, a moment like this, even though we get those moments, it wasn't sullied either. I think it kind of just added to it. it. It added like the there was always an air of mystery around Agent Cooper for me. Like, why is he mm-hmm. so intuitive? Like, why can he just throw a rock at a at a glass bottle and and then figure out who mm-hmm. killed Laura Palmer? It's um mm-hmm. so. I think this is um although it's there's a little bit of a different dressing on it. It's kind of more of the same with that character. Yeah, it's just more uh, more blatant, maybe. But in retrospect, it's not something that either of us caught on. That like the 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 fact that he does literally reach through to the lodge like that's brilliant i i totally didn't even catch that but you're absolutely right that that is really strange he shouldn't be able to do that and the fact that he does do that is um it should have sent up some alarm bells um and it does when you watch it a second or third time or well and it's kind of dulled a little bit because i mean even as dougie he was talking to mike you know mike was appearing to him and and stuff. So this one's kind of they never no, they never touched, and, and and that was the, a shift. But mm-hmm. um, you know, Dougie didn't seem capable of interacting with much of anything. So y- you can always kind of tell that, mm-hmm. that was kind of there, mm-hmm. and some to some expect. So uh, this was just the natural continuation of that that sequence of them talking back and forth through this lodgy haze thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's I think it's also interesting that uh, you know um, the Cooper that we get here. Yes, it's Cooper. And to my point earlier, it's the exact same Cooper that we know and love. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's also not, uh, as also evidenced here. But um, I think the the real Cooper that we see after 25 years in this darkness is kind of the Richard character. That's always been kind of my interpretation. We talked about Richard already a little bit, so I feel comfortable jumping well, back no, in. Well, no, but that's a, that's a good point, too, that um, you wouldn't expect a bubbly... Uh, happy-go-lucky, coffee-loving Agent Cooper to show up after 25 years in in the Black Lodge. I don't mm-hmm. think that that's um, realistic, a realistic expectation. As much as we can talk about realistic <laughs> Realism, expectations yeah. when we're dealing with Lodge entities and Twin Peaks, um, it just doesn't seem to to fit that, that, that that would happen. So maybe that should have also been a clue to us that this wasn't Real this life. wasn't the final Cooper. This is yeah. not the final iteration yeah. of him that we've that we mm. that but we should it, have expected. But it after is it years. is really interesting to think that that um, this version of Cooper that we see waking up can communicate with Mike so seamlessly, knows what it means and how to create a tulpa. Like he he understands that part of Lodge workings machinations mm-hmm. like he's able to well, he seems to that. understand all of it he understands he everything out, like, yeah like everything that follows this point is him being completely aware of how all the magic yeah. of the, the magicians like, work you know like if you want to if you want to go back to that uh whenever the the term dugpa was first you know late in season two whenever that was brought up like the idea that there were these magicians that that Wyndham Earl was trying to become one or whatever I mean is that what Agent Cooper became or is he a fully fledged lodge entity at this point like mm. the the clues are all there it's it it adds another layer to that mythology while still at the same time giving us that little bit of fan service because mm-hmm. it's Agent Cooper back like I, I just mm-hmm. I can't get over how no, how layered that is and how uh, multifaceted it is you it, depending on who you are and where you fit in the the grand scheme of you know fan theories and and everything like you could go anywhere with this it's it's mm-hmm. actually kind of fascinating it's really cool yeah yeah so so much to get into here um one thing that i i really love 
just on an emotional level is Cooper's level of compassion for mm. Janie and Sonny Jim. Mm-hmm. They are really his first priority as soon as he wakes up. You know, he he makes that tulpa specifically for them. And, you know, he he puts his arm around Sonny Jim and says, you know, and he greets Janie E. And we're going to see a little bit later in the casino that he he really was fully aware of everything mm-hmm. that was going on when he was uh, you know, trapped, imprisoned, however you want to view it, inside the Dougie character. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that one of the first things he does is comfort Janie E and Sonny Jim, even though he obviously has like this whole grand, mysterious, metaphysical plan that he's immediately about to embark on. It's yeah. it's that little bit of uh, it's that Cooperness that that um, compels him to make sure that you know his his family who who took care of him in this in this weakened state is is doing okay. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and it, um, I was really really glad that. The Janie E and Sonny Jim storyline wasn't just tossed aside as soon as Cooper woke up. I was a little bit worried that that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was really given a poignant ending, I think, makes their whole makes the whole Dougie storyline as a whole feel a lot more resonant to me. And it seems to kind of fit in with the uh, the idea that. Um... That it's another ending that Cooper gets in the story for as many different ways you can look at endings in Twin Peaks, um, or at least in The Return. This is an ending to a story that Cooper himself wasn't able to live because he wasn't given the chance to have a wife or children. But through Dougie, he gets that. And then there's this other version of him that still exists in, in Lancelot Court and that gets to go home at the end of part 17 and we get to see... or whenever it was in part 17 that Mm -hmm. that that version of cooper dougie goes home to janie and sunny jim Mm -hmm. um that's kind of poignant and sweet in itself that um that cooper who has lost out on so much of like a quarter century of his life still gets to in some version of reality gets to have that which is kind of sweet. And it, yeah, it does kind of lend a purpose to the Janie Sunny Jim stuff, which a lot of people didn't really see the point of, except, you know, their relation to Dougie was mm-hmm. the only reason they, they existed, but it's something more poignant finally here at the end. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We, Dylan and I, we, we talked a lot about how in retrospect, a lot of the stuff with the Jones household is like, um, I don't know. It has a deceptive complexity to it because the first time you watch mm-hmm. it, you it, it it's very much played for laughs. A lot of it, but the way in which Janie E reacts to Dougie Jones and the way in which Sonny Jim reacts to Dougie changes a lot. Actually, throughout mm-hmm. the course of the season, you know, she starts very much in this sort of exasperated I guess you could say like nagging wife uh, milieu <laughs> and yeah. by by the end of it she's she's much more um, I don't know she seems to have like a genuine love for Dougie uh, because mm-hmm. he's brought she's brought so many so many blessings to them mm-hmm. um, and you know he's 
solved a lot of their problems, uh, you know, through his own like Mr. Magooish way that he does. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. I, um, yeah. And also I guess while we're here, just um big shout out to Naomi Watts oh. for her work this season. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's so, so wonderful. She doesn't do enough, like really, really good work nowadays. Mm. Um, but when she's given a role where she can really shine, she is just one of the best actresses out there, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, love love what she had to do this season. And I'm sure it was extremely challenging given that she, for the most part, was given this zombified Kyle McLaughlin to play off of and <laughs> yeah. had no idea what was going on or, or why any of this was taking place. But, you know, people <laughs> people just sort of... Uh, give themselves over to the material when when Lynch is concerned, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. So Cooper wakes up. He uh, you know he immediately you know starts putting his plan in motion to you know contact the FBI and get on a plane to Washington so he can show up in Twin Peaks. Uh, he asks Bushnell for his gun. And mm. Bushnell just has no qualms whatsoever about <laughs> handing his gun over to a man who was comatose like two minutes ago, <laughs> uh, which is great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then they all sort of head to the casino. Sonny Jim is just delighted by this new version of his dad. He says, you know, he, he, dad can drive real good. And, <laughs> you know, he, he just has so much light in his eyes, which makes it a little bit sad because, you know, in the casino, Sonny Jim melts down a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little heartbreaking. You know, he says, you know, you are my dad. You are my dad. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we get that great Angelo Badalamenti music playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cooper says a farewell to Jeannie E and Sonny Jim and makes it very apparent that he's appreciative of all the things that they have done for him. And Janie E clearly, you know, she's not stupid. She recognizes that uh, this man who is up and about and speaking coherently is not her Dougie Jones. And, uh, you know, she gives him a kiss and says, you know, whoever you are, thank you. And, um, right. you know, and they're off. Um, so, yeah, that pretty much does it uh, for Cooper here at the silver uh or yeah here at the silver mustang i guess the last scene here is they ride off in a limo uh <laughs> he and the mitchum brothers and candy manny and sandy and uh cooper is he's drinking some some coffee out of a uh a big glass mug <laughs> um which i guess they just wanted to make it extra clear it's like hey he's drinking coffee guys it's yeah. the real deal <laughs> <laughs> yeah although it's like pitch black it's like it's like it looks like tar. It's so black. It does. Um, and uh, yeah, so Mission Brothers uh, are understandably a little bit distressed that the man that uh, they've come to idolize so much is in fact an FBI agent. Mm-hmm. But Cooper assures them that they have hearts of gold and that uh, they have nothing to worry about. And then Candy agrees Candy that they agrees they really hard. do. They really do have. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah. is. She is just lost in reverie for the golden-heartedness of the Mitchum brothers at all times. <laughs> um, 
So let's dive in to Diane. Yes, let's. (laughs) Yeah. So it's worth noting that this scene begins... um, The music from Falling fades into the scene. Like, I believe the way it's structured is like, uh, Cooper and the gang are driving to the Silver Mustang and Falling is still playing and it continues to play uh, through the beginning of the scene here with Diane and as soon as she looks at her phone and sees the all text, Mm -hmm. the music just comes to a complete grinding halt and she slams her hand down and she has this horrified look on her face. Right. And clearly something has been awakened in her, triggered in her, some sort of change has taken place. Now, it would seem like, to some extent, some of her memories have been returned to her. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're about to see in her, her recollections of uh, uh, of her rape that she gives to the Blue Rose Task Force here. But do you guys, um, do you guys have like a strong opinion on what exactly has happened to Diane in this moment? I have like a... Uh-huh. Oh, go ahead, Aiden. Good. Okay. Well, so yeah, my mine's pretty simple. I think I, I, the way I always interpret it was kind of uh, an unraveling. Like she receives this this text message, and it's like a self destruct order as mm. from to a tulpa. Like a tulpa is built in with this thing to completely unravel. Um, but I think it was also you know in order to kill uh, the Blue Rose Task Force, uh, Gordon probably specifically. Um, and I think it's kind of. Uh, so it's just like it's and it's her kind of uh her tulpa kind of facing the reality of the real diane you know having access to the real diane's memories all of a sudden and that just mentally is how it manifests but i feel i've always viewed it very mechanically like this is this is a this is a robot that's being told to to shut down and that's just kind of uh the it's like the keyword it's like the order 66 or whatever it is from star wars Attack of the Clones, mm-hmm. right, Revenge right, right. of the Jedi, or whatever right. it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I feel like I, that there was definitely some sort of like a self-destruct message or some sort of triggering message. Um, the smile uh, is very ominous, considering that's what Diane mm-hmm. brings up later when she's talking to the Blue Rose Task Force is how, right. how Cooper reacted to her fear um, that he was taking advantage of her. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bit, um, in between some ideas where on one hand, I think it, it makes total sense that this would be sort of Mr. C executing the final act. Like his usefulness for Diane is through now that he, he knows which one of the coordinates was the, um, the trapped one, so to speak. Mm -hmm. However, Diane then as she reacts very viscerally to the text and then starts going, I remember, oh, Coop, oh, Coop, I hope this works. And then sends Mr. C another coordinate, which I'm not totally sure what to make of because it seems like at this point he has all the coordinates um, that he was seeking. So I'm wondering, in the fact that she says, oh, Coop, I hope this works, as if... um, at least this version of her knows um, that there is the good Cooper still out there and that perhaps mm-hmm. this action is working on that Cooper's behalf 
because we do see some weirdness with the text message uh, time and like the yes. like there's all kinds of you know screwiness with that. So the other and then the other factor being that um, which I don't believe Mr. C is aware of is that Nido who we know to be at least we believe to be the true Diane is in Twin Peaks is in the sheriff's station. And mm-hmm. that night, that Diane perhaps has the memories um, the, of of what actually is happening and is not under the thumb of Mr. C. So that when her her programming kind of goes haywire because she walks up to the, the Blue Rose Task Force in room and seems conflicted the entire time. And then, of course, starts speaking in in sort of random non sequiturs and making the realization that she's not here she's in the the sheriff's station um right so i think that probably mr c's plan was to you know sort of this was his way of um being done with this diane topo that he has no more need for but uh mm-hmm. perhaps a part of gordon or the fireman or mike or cooper's plan um like they were maybe one step ahead and by getting Nido into this plane of reality, it starts to mess with the memories of this Diane. And so she sends this coordinate to, um, to Mr. C, which ultimately ends up, uh, bringing him to twin peaks because of the fireman's little bait and switch thing. So, um, I feel like we are seeing part of Mr. C's plans begin to disintegrate here um, mm-hmm. because if obviously if the plan was to do away with uh, the Blue Rose task force that did not happen and the right. and and Diane's actions ultimately lead to the destruction of Mr. C and Bob so um, but the you know who could say for sure with with, with all this kind of stuff we're talking about <laughs> yeah <laughs> But I like that a lot that um, the Nido connection, um, that her presence is kind of what throws things off because that didn't seem to enter into uh, Bob or Mr. C's um, understanding of what was going on. They didn't know she existed. And then obviously the fireman uh, later on sends Mr. C directly to the sheriff's station from Jack Rabbit's palace, which Mm -hmm. is where we first see Nido in the real world. And so... Um, that, that does absolutely lead me to think that there's, there are two plans. There's Mr. C's plan. And then there's the fireman slash Gordon Cole slash maybe Cooper. Yeah. Like they have a plan of their own and that they're, they're kind of, uh, clashing here a bit. And then that is, Diane is unfortunately at the nexus of that and, and kind of, um, this, this unraveling or disintegration that she experiences is is amplified by the fact that uh, Nido and all of her memories as the other half of Diane or another consciousness related to Diane kind of bleeds into um, the Tulpa version that we've seen and spent time with over the course of the last however many episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like that a lot. I think that's really interesting and it kind of explains... What happened doesn't quite explain why the the tiny whininess of the text messages, no. but I don't think anything will at this point. Well, there's some grand unified theory coming at some point, <laughs> I'm sure, but until then, yes, nothing makes any sense. John Bernardi hasn't written it yet, <laughs> yes, so yeah, but when it comes, it'll. <laughs> John, come on, man, we need, we need answers. Yeah. We're waiting we need, on you, John. We please, 
please, my family is dying. Please read the article. Um, Love it. But yeah, that's that's inter- that's interesting. I never I never really thought about uh, the the context of of Nido uh, with regards to the text that that she sends. Uh, that actually does make a certain degree of sense because otherwise, it's like like her sending that text never really made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um because you know his Mr. C presumably he already has the the coordinates to Jack Rabbit's palace. Um yeah. my my guess is that they probably came from uh Ruth Davenport's arm. Right. Uh yeah. that I mean that would seem to make a certain amount of sense. Um but yeah, I never really it never really made sense to me that she would send these coordinates to Mr. C, uh, since he already has them, but I guess if her mm-hmm. consciousness is intersecting with Nido in a certain sense, and that you know Nido is all is uh, you know all, all part of this this grand plan involving the, the, the fireman and Cooper and Mike, like you said, I guess it, it makes a certain degree of sense because uh, you know we we know we know what the fireman has in store mm-hmm. in the next episode. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's 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 good. I never really um, I've, I've never really seen that that floated around. So. Yeah, so Diane, she does a long, slow walk up to the hotel room, the Blue Rose Task Force. We get the reemergence of American Woman by Muddy Magnolias, mm-hmm. the David Lynch remix, the uh, incredible track that was used to introduce Mr. C in the very first episode. So uh, good. Chill, yeah, chill-inducing here uh, in the way that it's reintroduced. And I love just this long slow walk that diane does here it's like it's so ominous and you just you know that something big is going to happen here and mm-hmm. um just like that that front shot of her walking down the hall where it's just focused on lord and face is really um really effective and uh so yeah she shows up to the door and gordon has some sense that she's already there because he tells her to come in despite the fact that she uh does not knock you know, no knock, no doorbell. Right. Um, which is, you know, interesting. Uh, speaking of John Bernardi, yeah. we've we've talked before about with him about how Gordon seems to be, you know, literally tuned into a different frequency as everybody else, and um, seems to have uh, some sort of like, um, I don't know, supernatural knowledge to some degree. Yeah. yeah. Um, he seemed aware of Cooper waking up as well. Like the way that the those scenes are shot. Oh yeah, it's like mm-hmm. the sound design from each scene, like the bleeps and bloops from the life support intersect sonically with the random machinery that seems to be in there, the Blue Rose Task yeah. Force yeah. room. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this, you know, and yeah, yeah. In fact, you're right. We we did forget to mention that there is that brief scene of of Gordon just sort of standing in the hotel room with all that ridiculous nondescript uh, <laughs> technology around there. And yeah. you know it's not not at all an accident. I think that that scene feeds directly into the uh, the Cooper Hospital stuff. So you're right. That's that's a good observation. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I just think that there's just compounding evidence that Gordon Cole is uh, knows more than the character leads on, uh, mm-hmm. at least to the viewer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. This is definitely like Laura Dern's finest moment in this show, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you really needed somebody of Laura Dern's talent to 
pull off this scene and to portray the level of uh, rawness and vulnerability required for a story this harrowing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Laura, you know, she can, she can do this sort of thing in her sleep. Uh, she's just so good. She's just <laughs> such a brilliant actress. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And it's really, I don't know, th- th- this whole thing, this whole story that she, she recounts, uh, of, of her rape at the hands of Mr. C is really chilling. First with the detail that he, he showed up totally unannounced after several years of non-communication as she says no knock nor doorbell you know because even if it's somebody that you know very well and have regular contact with it's like you you don't just walk into somebody's house you know it's like right it's a very after years you know it's a very just of not seeing yeah it's a very distressing it's a very distressing detail that he would just show up like that and um yeah, he he kisses her, and we, we learn conclusively that Diane and Cooper had had some sort of relationship um, years ago. She says that they had kissed once before, uh, which is interesting. And um, yeah, Mr. C pretty much, uh, you know, he takes advantage of this moment and rapes her after questioning her a little bit about her dealings with the FBI and it's just so um it's so it's so sinister because you know he obviously he obviously doesn't need to to rape her for any part of his plan you know it's like that bobness showing through you know it's mm-hmm. that id it's that it's that part of him that um that that craves like this dark this dark pleasure uh, that 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 is coming through in him now. It's just like, you know, taking her to the convenience store and making a tulpa, you know, for the express purpose of manipulating the Blue Rose Task Force and what have you is one thing. But like, he didn't have to rape her, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But he but he does because you know he's not just the doppelganger; he's also Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's 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 worth pointing out. I think that it's it. Oh, go ahead, Lindsay. No, no, no. You go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say I think that the rape as a device on this show is like sort of where you start to see characters, uh, like that's their point of fracture, whether it be mm-hmm. uh, Laura Palmer or Audrey mm-hmm. or Diane. This, mm-hmm. uh, at least thematically, when that happens to them, they're in just just like with with trauma in, in real life personalities sort of split to cope with with that reality like that this thing that happened you almost have to design Mm -hmm. a new version of yourself that can conceive of such a horrific act and that's sort of where i like uh again not not that it's being used like flippantly that that it's like Mm -hmm. being used like like the idea of rape is being used in a way that is uh pointing out what what the effects of trauma actually are like even just on a thematic mm-hmm. level like regardless of mm-hmm. the plot the characters that that happens to they all fragment into various mm-hmm. forms of themselves some of them completely malicious and some of them um helpless or or otherwise so you know what what he did to Diane was more than 
just um, force himself on her. He he kind of, at least in the way that that Bob seems to do, uh, caused her entire being to split into different different pieces, and then uses those fractured bits to manipulate uh, these people to to his end or its end. And I think that that is such a um, it's such a harrowing portrayal of of like a like you could just have it be like he he raped her because he's evil and he wanted to inflict pain on her and he does and he did but it also has this like you said before Nick a ripple effect that does it doesn't end there and and it doesn't really ever end for the for that person they are constantly uh, stuck with this um, this truth that. Mm-hmm is um and i but i think it's really important that there is a degree of hope for for uh, maybe not audrey but or at least maybe maybe there is for audrey because the last thing we see is her waking up that there is this like they keep this there is a shred of of um who they were that's left and that ends up usually being the thing that like at least in laura's case triumphs it is her inherent yeah. goodness at the end of Fire Walk with Me that we that we see on display, and mm-hmm. um, Diane as well. Diane is is instrumental in in the final stages of this plan. Whether or not they go well, she is. I think yeah. I think certainly like Lara and Diane and, and to another extent Audrey are are the hero characters in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that that Agent Cooper kind of kind of isn't. Um, mm-hmm. So. I just I, I just found it really um, hard to ignore the fact that the three victims of Bob all meet that that similar fracturing and that they all sort of seem like different aspects of them are instrumental in bringing that that character down in the end. I think that's what makes the what makes Twin Peaks so powerful in it's it's that very perceptive portrayal of trauma that a lot of trauma victims have have talked about i wrote about this for 25 years later and i got some emails and comments that said you know and and people have written about this regarding laura palmer as well where it's a very um honest and realistic portrayal of trauma in that sense of of the fracturing of one's personality or you know needing to separate the part of you that experienced that um that event or that that trauma you contain it in a way and then you create this other personality that can then you know continue living because you can't reconcile the two parts of yourself it's almost like trauma itself tulpifies us you know in a sense that that so it's 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 a very unique way a way that couldn't be done on a show like law and order svu or something where there is no supernatural element that kind of uh elevates yeah or like experience yeah it's it's the way that 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 the show uses to explain it but it also works on this other level of reality that that trauma victims recognize and identify with and i think that's why um like we get confirmation in the scene that diane was raped for for you know and as a woman and as um other people who are trauma survivors have have said it was so obvious when she met Cooper in or met Mr. C, I guess, in the jail that this is what happened. But there were right. so many people who were like, that's he, he just stood her up. He they went on a date and it didn't go well or something like there's no way that that people 
react this way to just being stood up on a date or just having their heart broken. Like that's not, it, it had to have been something more than that, but, but nobody or not everybody clued into that at that, at that point, it took to this point for people again, like with Richard Horn's parentage and what happened to Audrey, it took a long time for people to come around to that. Um, and it just goes to show you how sophisticated Twin Peaks um, and Frost and Lynch, how sophisticated their conversation about trauma actually is, which is really amazing to think that it was already starting back in 1989, 1990, 1991. And that now, I mean, it came out a few months before the Me Too movement kind of took off and, and all of these things started happening in our society. And so that conversation is now happening. I mean, it, it just seems like it's it's beyond where a lot of other shows, it's beyond where they're, the conversation that they're having. It just mm-hmm. went beyond that. And I don't know if it's because it was able to couch it in these supernatural terms or what, but um, it kind of, yeah, it, it just makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It just makes a lot of sense. That's, yeah, in a way that other shows mm-hmm. yeah. don't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this conversation really brings to mind a, a larger conversation surrounding Lynch's work that has existed pretty much since Blue Velvet, I would say, which is his depictions of the suffering of women mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the abuse of women at the hands of men and you know, it's been uh, really a, a source of, of controversy throughout really the, you know, the, the back what, three quarters of his career about, right. you know, the degree to which he uses, you know, female trauma as, uh, you know, it's like a, ch- a cheap, you know, shock tactic or uses it mm-hmm. as sort of a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a cynical means of, of propelling a plot forward mm-hmm. and... You know, I, I think that, honestly, like, if you really wanted to construct that argument that he is being exploitative to a degree, I think that there's probably, <laughs> you probably would have enough ammunition to do so. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say anybody is out of line for, for saying that, but I, I think that, you know, what we're talking about here is why those arguments feel really incomplete to me because I think that it's very important that Lynch, he doesn't just use these instances of trauma to uh, just sort of propel his plot forward. I I think he really delves into the interiority of these women, uh, albeit through a very abstract way oftentimes, Mm -hmm. but I think it's pretty clear that he takes it very seriously and it's depicted, Mm -hmm. you know, exactly as horrifically as it is. You know, we already Mm -hmm. mentioned the Lonely Souls episode. Yeah. Um, You know, I I think, you know, Fire Walk With Me probably is the biggest evidence that we have that he really does take it seriously because Mm -hmm. that's a movie that nobody at the time wanted him to make, (laughs) as we've established, but... He did it because he wanted to elevate Laura from, you know, this just this symbol that she was on the show into like a full-fledged human human being and really mm-hmm. make us feel her pain and understand that her trauma 
is the is the is the inciting you know is the inciting incident for you know the entire series and not yeah. in a and not in a really basic way but for a really in a, in a really profound you know thematic sense yeah um and i think that the same is true for a lot of the you know the the, the rape and the violence that we see on this show mm-hmm. um you know it's it's not just there as window dressing it's really dealt with in a in a complex way in the text um so yeah. you know even though you know i understand why people take issue uh with lynch and and his his depiction of, of violence with women and everything like that i just i would encourage people to um you know think a little bit think a little bit more more deeply about it and consider the ways in which he is dealing with it uh, perhaps more sensitively than it would appear at first so mm-hmm. For sure, and I think it's yeah. it's insensitive subject matter, of course, um, but I don't know of anyone who enjoys David Lynch's films or Twin Peaks because it they they enjoy the depiction of of traumatized women. Um, I think it's almost always the opposite. Like I I almost always have conversations similar to this one about how mm-hmm. how uh, although you, you know, there is a depiction of this of of, of horror. There's almost always a um, those those characters are almost always the heroes or, or quote unquote heroes like right. it's not it's not like that but it's like um, I think Tomaholland Drive and um, mm-hmm. Naomi Watts' yeah. character you're sort of witnessing in uh, without giving too much away for those who haven't seen it you're witnessing like a uh, like aspects of that character um, sort of coping with something. And she is the the central character that you empathize with, and um, I think too, like going back to even before Fire Walk with Me, the character of Maddie Ferguson is there so that you can have a better understanding of what happened to Lara. She looks like Lara. Right. She dealt with Lara all the same things that Lara was dealing with. And uh, I want to do a quick shout out to Take the Ring Four Three Zero makes an absolutely Mm -hmm. awesome youtube um video it's about twin peaks just released his uh his video about laura in which he makes that point Mm -hmm. that that's sort of where the the viewer gets to experience the character of laura for the first time in her closest friends and uh her interaction with bob it's like that's the lens that we that we get to see it through and um there is absolutely nothing enjoyable about that like we've talked about and i don't it's it's sure it's graphic, but I don't think it's gratuitous. I think it's making a very clear point that, um, you know, this this isn't all about coffee and donuts. It's not. It it right. is so much. And in in life, life can be about coffee and donuts. You know, that's that's yeah. a, a bigger point. Like there is there are good things. That's maybe the grander point mm-hmm. to that. Um, the sort of mm-hmm. like whimsical nature of of Twin Peaks is that yeah that that stuff exists and is valid, but you need to simultaneously reckon with the horrors of of everything, and I think mm-hmm. that's why it's called Twin Peaks. I've always felt that dua- yeah. duality is the is like central to this show and understanding the poles, and that's why we ha- deal with that with so many different characters and so many different parts of, of this show. It, it's you're you're forced to look at what you know what is really really good what's really really bad and Mm -hmm. what exists in the middle and how can you sort of um how can you make peace with that or cope with it i think it's really important to Mm -hmm. understanding like what this show is quote unquote about 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we grapple with. I, I don't think it's something that, like, I've had a very complicated um, relationship with with Twin Peaks and its depiction of trauma. And um, and I did write about that as well on 25 Years Later. So, I mean, I've, I'm on both sides of the of this debate where I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little gratuitous and sometimes the violence and trauma is appropriate. And I still don't know exactly where I fit, but I feel like I'm glad that the show is there to help me and help viewers um, kind of reckon with that and grapple with it. And um, depending on who you are, you're going to fall on different sides of this debate but I think it's valuable to have the debate to begin with and that wouldn't happen if it wasn't dealt with uh in this way we 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 don't talk about this to this depth with uh Tarantino right or it it just it It just just can't there's no subtlety there but there there seems to be here there's a sensitivity underpinning it all and that's what is that's what makes it different Mm -hmm. and you're you're right to be fair I, I I agree with you that like not every instance of violence towards women that we see in this show is necessarily like proving some greater point. Like mm-hmm. I don't think Lorraine <laughs> being right. ruthlessly mm-hmm. yeah. slaughtered at, at the hands of Ike the Spike is necessarily making any sort of grander point. And mm-hmm. I, you know I do think that that scene, um, you know, as as well staged as it is, I don't think that it is using that violence to any any greater means than to simply you know shock and disturb so you know it's not mm-hmm. all just uh you know it's not all just black and white and yeah uh you know it's it's always going to be a conversation worth having with regards to to lynch's work so mm-hmm. absolutely um so yeah we learned that Diane uh, was indeed taken to what she describes as a gas station. What we can probably save to say is the convenience store mm-hmm. um, that, that that we know and love. Um, and she, um, she, like you mentioned, Dylan, she starts spouting off a bunch of really strange non sequiturs about how that she's she's not her. She's in the sheriff station, etc. And I think this is where uh, people you know, started reasonably concluding that Nido was the quote-unquote real Diane, you know, not just mm-hmm. because of, uh, you know, Nido being O-Diane spelled backwards and all that. Right. Um, so, yeah, so she pulls out the gun and she is immediately blown away by Albert and Tammy and she just sort of, <laughs> she, she she just like zips out of reality. It's really difficult to describe exactly what mm-hmm. happens. Um, like she gets shot and she is just immediately transported back to the red room right. where Mike is there giving her what is apparently just his stock speech uh, <laughs> for Tulpas that go back into the red room about how, listen, you were manufactured for a purpose. Uh, I don't I don't know how many times he's had to do it, but he's he's got it down. <laughs> and um, and we get just the, the perfect Diane handoff here where she responds, I know, fuck you. <laughs> and um yeah that's it for diane uh at least the tulpa diane yeah uh, we're gonna see quite a bit more of um quote-unquote real diane <laughs> a little <laughs> bit later uh yeah. in, the, in the season yeah let's not get into that now be here all day <laughs> um so i guess the last thing left to talk about is audrey and charlie at the roadhouse yeah. Um, first we get 
Edward Lewis Severson, a.k.a. Eddie Vedder, mm. uh, playing this song, Out of Sand, uh, which I think is fine. Uh, any strong opinions about this song? It's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, man. I'm not... I'm not a, a Pearl Jam guy. I'm not an Eddie Vedder guy. I think I just, I have like, uh, you can only like so many like unconventional vocalists to a degree. Like I, I, I like uh, Isaac Brock from Honest Mouse. I like Billy Corgan. So I guess there's just no room for me to like Eddie Vedder. Yeah, I just can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't. It's understandable. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I've never been a, a huge Pearl Jam fan either. I'm honestly not a huge fan of his vo- his vocal stylings. Like he's objectively a good singer. Sure. Like there's no there's no debating it. Like he's he's a great singer for sure. Yeah. I just I don't know. It's just one of those personal things where like the way that he chooses to enunciate words just just <laughs> yeah. like robs them of their emotional heft for me. I don't I, I don't I can't really explain it. Yeah. No, I can't take it's it like, seriously. I've never when he been. Sings. It's true. No. Yeah. I've never been moved by an Eddie Vedder vocal performance, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Uh even though the song is like it's quite like it's pretty good. Like it's got some good melodies and I think the lyrics are pretty decent, but I just I don't know, man. I just it's, I can't really get behind it. It's quite long too. Yeah. And and it's interesting that lyrically and I mean Eileen Michaels wrote about this on Twenty Five Years Later. She did like a deep dive into some of the songs that were used at the Roadhouse and uh, lyrically mm. and thematically, it, it is an interesting very, kind ties of ties in very well. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, like I, still, I don't just, have any opinion it's, it's about the performance, just... except that it leads into this uh, this great moment with where yeah. we yes, actually yes, see yes, Audrey the... show up at the Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Let's let's get into that. Enough of Eddie Vedder. Um, so yeah, uh, this song is playing. Uh, I like a lot of people. I'm sure were, you know, getting out of Twin Peaks mode, uh, saying, "Well, that was a great episode. Wow, Cooper's back. Amazing. Can't wait for the two part finale." Uh, you know, and I was just sort of you know, like fiddling with my phone. You know, just doing my usual thing where I go on Twitter and see everybody's hot takes mm-hmm. uh, about the episode immediately. Um, and then, holy shit, Audrey and Charlie. Wow, okay. So <laughs> I guess Audrey really is in real life. And the <laughs> roadhouse is 100% real. And all those crazy, wacky theories are totally invalid. Wow, amazing <laughs> to get such to get such firm confirmation of all that right here in this moment. Incredible. Um, and then, like, eight seconds later... All of that is immediately cast aside because we hear the MC of the Roadhouse announce Audrey's dance, uh, which is pretty weird because that's just sort of like the name for that song that we've given it, mm-hmm. like yep. as fans. Like I don't, I don't think that's like actually the name of the song, um, but yeah. So he says that, and then everybody in the roadhouse just sort of simultaneously clears the floor. And that's when you're like, well, this definitely isn't real. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, Cheryl and Finn, she, she, she gets to do her dance here. It's uh, a little bit, it's the, uh, it's an extended version of of Mm -hmm. her dance. You know, she's got a little bit more, uh, more moves in her arsenal at this point. Uh, Mm. She's it's, it's really, we're really, really kind of wallowing in this in this moment here for for a good long while 
And out of frame, a guy comes in and says, hey, that's my wife, asshole, and breaks a bottle over another guy's head. At which point, Audrey runs over to Charlie and says, you got to get me out of here. And we flash to Audrey in an all-white room wearing a hospital gown of some sort, uh, peering into a circular mirror, and there is heavy electrical buzzing on the soundtrack. And then we cut to black. We come up again on the house band, and they are playing Audrey's Dance Backwards. Not weird at all. (laughs) (laughs) Where to begin? Where to begin with this? Um... So yeah, I guess I guess let's just I guess let's just start out with what we what our feelings are about what has ultimately become of Audrey here. Like, do we feel that she uh, is in a, a lodge space of some sort? I know that we mentioned that pretty much anybody who comes into Mister C in this very specific way sort of gets sublimated into a lodge space, um, mm-hmm. seemingly. Um, there's also evidence to suggest that she is in a mental institution, uh, which, you know, if you've read Mark Frost's <laughs> book, uh, The right. Final Dossier, um, you know, that would seem to check out based on what he says there. And also the fact that, you know, she's wearing a hospital gown and everything like that. What is what, what is the uh, what do you guys think just broadly about this? Uh, I guess I'll start with uh, Dylan. Um. Yeah, man. I mean, I wish I had, I wish I had a lot for you, but I just don't. It's, it's one of those things where, like, or maybe, maybe I'd be, maybe I'm about to talk for longer than I think I'm gonna, because uh, the more I think about this, the more like rabbit holes I can go down. But I think, yeah. um, what just based on what we see, uh, we see uh, Audrey staring into a mirror. We hear buzzing, and then we are, uh, her song is played in reverse which mm-hmm. I think those three things just indicate to me that she is at least somewhat um, or in some way between two worlds. As we, we keep talking about these characters, she is uh, whether the roadhouse to her is a hallucination or if that is just another um, another space that she is inhabiting that could just simply be. I don't know if she's like, who knows, man? Cause is she still in a coma? Is she still, is, is there anything, mm-hmm. is there any indicator uh, that we have? I don't really think that there is, but um, besides trying to go into maybe some commentary on um, fan expectations and reboots and all that stuff, which I think you could, but I think it requires mm-hmm. a just more speculation on, the the filmmakers like, intentions than i feel comfortable uh making uh right uh, it's what we see is just a character who is uh not sure who or what or where she is and mm-hmm. that disorientation is then passed on to us uh the viewers where like the last thing we hear audrey say is is what is she's staring into this mm-hmm. mirror. She she is as confused as we are, which I think mm-hmm. is something that's pretty pretty telling. And um, I hadn't thought about the the fact that you know that is like a circular m- mirror, and that in 
Um, I believe it's the final dossier or, or secret history that Audrey is revealed to have gone to beauty school. But right. but whether or not that's supposed to be like a um, just another like aspect of her memory, uh, sort of in like this dream logic mm-hmm. kind of way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and But I think for sure, if we were meant to be able to figure this one out, there would be like uh, far more breadcrumbs than we are. I think the fact that the character herself yeah. is massively disoriented and given that what we know about what actually happened to her, um, or at least something that happened to her, we can conclude that um, perhaps we're not meant to understand fully what she is going through, but we can just uh, we can speculate that it sucks <laughs> for her really bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I think um, the the two kind of options that are thrown out there a lot are is like a mental hospital or a lodge space. And I don't think those are actually, uh, you know, mutually exclusive in a lot of ways, because that's another thing we can talk about a lot with uh, Lynch's depiction of mental illness. Um, And even in the original Twin Peaks, uh, you know, Philip Gerard, uh, you know, traveling between two worlds because he didn't take his his psychotropic drugs, you know, like, and, Mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Jacoby, potentially slipping between two worlds in the the final dossier, or not the final dossier, in the secret history of Twin Peaks, potentially he's slipped between worlds by using, uh, you know... uh, Mind-altering Mind-altering substances, substances, yes. Uh, Jerry Horn potentially being another one, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it could be that she's physically in a mental hospital and uh, mentally mentally she is in this lodge space or, you know, some combination thereof, right? And I think that's, um, that's very Lynch to equate the two. Uh, to say, well, mentally ill people are just, you know, having a happy little world in their lodge space, you know, is or unhappy more likely. Uh, you know, that's that's a very kind of uh, lynching way of looking at it. So I think, yeah, this this kind of does that ambiguity of where is she so well and with such a, a strong desire on all of our parts to fill in the gap that I think it's kind of you're right it's just it's a it's a losing proposition to really try and nail anything down but um yeah i think that it's also interesting that as you pointed out uh dylan that her last word is what right it's very cooper-esque you know his last words about being also being confused i think all of the characters in this series are very confused at the end of it just like the audience and uh yeah that's that's Mm -hmm. terrifying but it's interesting, too, that we're given enough clues through Diane's story to kind of put together mm-hmm. what happened. So it's not like we're totally left floundering at the end with regard to Audrey. Like, we aren't told explicitly that, yes, Agent Cooper, or who we thought was Agent Cooper, raped Audrey while she was in a coma. It's all left to kind of um, yeah. uh, speculation yeah. through the conversations of other characters. Yeah, we're filling in the gaps. We are absolutely filling in the gaps. But then when we get Diane telling us what happened to her, um, I, like I wonder if 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 it was a bridge too far to have it be for for Lynch and Frost to actually have Audrey's story laid out so concretely because it was because she was such a fan favorite. So they they have they bring this Diane character in. Um, who existed in in the like Cooper's autobiography? If we want to talk about these, you know, the the novels that exist around the the show, mm-hmm. um, and and existed in the original show as the tape recorder, maybe possibly or whatever. Um, and we had that be the the character that is explicitly 
we are explicitly told this is what happened to her. But then here's this other character who's a fan favorite. And we can't actually say that about Audrey, but we're going to tell you what happened to Diane. And we're going to let you figure out what happened to Audrey because it's too painful or something to like actually address it head on. I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's harrowing. It is. And, and to think about this all happening to Audrey and then to find out that at the end of the series, she's in this weird, like, yeah. Yeah, like it's 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 odd but but it's not entirely out of character or um we aren't completely unable to put some kind of story together around mm-hmm. her. Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um I don't have too much to add to what you guys have said. I, you know, I I'm sort of thinking along the same lines. Um I personally believe that she is in some sort of quote-unquote lodge space Mm. um i don't i don't know the idea that she is just in a a mental institution just seems a little bit too pat to me Mm -hmm. seems a little bit too easy and i think you know the the big clue is the electricity happening like Mm -hmm. like the electricity is just like blaring you know on on the score during this scene and you know, we don't just hear that at any old time. It's always because, you know, some sort of uh, lodge magic is afoot here. Right. Um, so it's just, you know, I I, I I really like what you said about, um, you know, trying to link this to Diane as well. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's it for Audrey. Um, certainly, I don't know, maybe the most controversial storyline of this season possibly um yeah probably yeah, yeah definitely so. yeah definitely like one of the most divisive mm-hmm. um but it's one that for me i i just you know even though it was certainly utterly baffling to me at the time i am just finding it to be a surprisingly rich vein to explore throughout yeah. you know subsequent rewatches and you know a lot of the discussions that i've had with dylan Mm-hmm. on this podcast have really um really sh- like shined a light on a lot of the you know a lot of the hidden complexities there mm-hmm. um and uh yeah i just i really i really appreciate it it's it's um it's sneakily one of my one of my favorite um storylines in this season mm-hmm. even though it's so short and it's it's really when you total it up it's not yeah, it's much. like 20 minutes of And maybe. it wasn't even <laughs> yeah. supposed to be the original story for Audrey. Right. Well, that's, right. accounts, that's the really interesting that... thing. Yeah, is mm-hmm. that she was going to be the hairdresser, you know, yeah. from the final dossier. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she probably would have had some interactions with uh, but it, Richard it would, or something. But it would have like, been, yep. you know, a Norma type of storyline. It yeah. wouldn't be this pivotal moment. Like that was... Well, it doesn't... And I mean, I'm glad Sherilyn Fenn pushed back and, yeah. and said, I don't want to do that because this is... This is much more fitting, like like you Absolutely. said, especially with the Diane tie-ins. Like, I mean, what happened to Diane? Mm-hmm. What happens to Laura? And what happened to Audrey as a result of the rape is fitting. You know, it just it yeah. does work for these three women to have had, you know, eerily similar, but you know, not they're not similar storylines in in a sense, but they're all they're all broken and they're all confused and thematically they're all, similar. They're thematically similar. Thank yeah. you. Yes. So I think that's very fitting. It was a good touch. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm glad it I'm glad it ended on this note because. 
you know, my my reaction when when this happens, like, oh, okay, don't worry, Cooper will arrive next week and <laughs> just fix everything, and she'll be out of that mental institution slash lodge space. And yeah. uh, and instead, he went to go save Laura, the big dummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> um, yeah, I distinctly remember, like, you know, in the finale when it became clear that, like, almost you know, none of the loose ends of the plot were going to get tied up. Like, mm-hmm. my overwhelming thought was Audrey. What about Audrey? Like even <laughs> yeah. like yeah. more so than like more so than literally anything else. I was just like, yeah. I can't believe that that's where we leave off with with Audrey. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. So do you guys subscribe to the theory that she was originally um, going to play the Sylvia Horn role uh, and be abused by Richard? Yeah. Yeah. I could have seen that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, yeah. that has to be why she reacted so viscerally negatively. Yeah. To- Absolutely to the script like that has to be why yeah yeah there's nothing else that makes sense yeah 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 which understandable that's not For like sure. i'm sure i'm sure that that's not the way that she envisioned returning to, to audrey horn no. and who knows who knows what else was gonna happen mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah i would love a i would love an alternate universe um version just to see what what happens with audrey here i me i just I would love to see the script for this show, just as a side note. I was just like, gonna say, yeah. I, I like. I would love to see the original script. I would love to see the shooting script. I just want to see. There's so many things that I'm so curious about, like in terms of, um, like the way things are described and mm-hmm. the order in which things appear. I just I can't help but feel like it would uh, shed shed some light on the intentionality of of Lynch and Frost mm-hmm. here. And also mm-hmm. we know that Kyle has said in interviews that they were actually more scenes of Cooper, you know, quote unquote being Cooper in, in, the, in the original script. Mm-hmm. So right. uh, we'll probably, we'll probably never know, never know what those are, but it, uh, I'm fascinated by it nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. No knock, no doorbell. Um, incredible episode just you know just everything you could have possibly wanted yeah uh and a lot of things that you didn't know you wanted um (laughs) and before we get out of here i just want to acknowledge the fact that we did forget to mention our old friend jerry horn um who (laughs) oh yeah uh who had some bad binoculars um those bad binoculars uh, (laughs) he had some bad binoculars and that's really all there is to say about that yeah. <laughs> um, we just, you know, we we couldn't get out of this episode without uh, wrapping that storyline up, the pivotal Absolutely. Jerry Horn storyline. So perfect. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Lindsay and Aiden, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, it was a great time. Uh, we really appreciate you yeah. coming on. Yeah. yeah thanks for having us on. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Dylan, my friend, uh, we're gonna have our work cut out for us. In the next couple of episodes. Oh boy! Hope you're hope you're strapped in. Hope you're ready for this. Got the notebooks out and uh, ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's gonna be a wild ride. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, hope you will join us again for the next couple of episodes here. Uh, if you would like to write into us, you can do so at one one nine podcast at gmail You can find us on Twitter at 119 podcast you can find me nick at strenuous orb and dylan is at piff dylan 
And um, where can people find you guys at on the internet? Uh, we are on Twitter at Bickering Peaks, um, on Facebook, which facebook.com slash Bickering Peaks. And then I'm on Twitter as well at Lynnstam. Yeah, and I'm at Aiden Hales, super inventive. And we also have Gmail, uh, bickeringpeaks at gmail.com Great. if you'd like to email us. Yeah. And uh, listen to Bickering Peaks. It's really good. <laughs> Listen to uh, 119 podcast. You're already listening to them, but continue. <laughs> hey, Can't wait to hear what you guys come up with on the, uh, uh, the, the finale. finale. Yeah. yeah, Me neither. I have no idea what's going on. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I just, we might never finish recording that podcast. Just fair warning. <laughs> um, awesome. So, yeah. Thanks again to everybody who's listening. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Later, guys. Peace. So we have a letter to read. We didn't want to keep Aiden and Lindsay too much longer. So we are just going to go ahead and knock this out. We thought it was a good letter and we thought it was worth reading on the show. So uh, Dylan, do you want to go ahead and read it? Of course. So this is a letter from Jeff. Jeff says, Hey guys, congratulations on doing a top-notch Twin Peaks podcast. I haven't been able to get enough Twin Peaks after the masterful ending of season three, which has led me to many TP podcasts. This is easily one of my favorites. Great insights, but most of all, you really take the time to dissect a scene and give the actors and actresses, camera work, sound design, writing, and of course the directing, a proper shout out. I actually came to your podcast late, so I'm burning through the episodes from the beginning. Just wrapped up episode 11, which compelled me to write this email. The scene with Bobby and the traffic incident, Camouflage Boy and Zombie Girl, has always been one of my favorites. You touched on an idea which was, is this Bobby's dream? But I've come to view this as Bobby failing to control the dream. Let's jump ahead to episode 17 where the superimposed Cooper says, we live inside a dream. Great. Fantastic. Let's go with that. It means that in the Bobby scene, back to episode 11, he's living inside the dream. So what happens? He sees Shelley go kiss Red, which makes him sad. Facial says it all. And so he starts thinking of how he would impress her. One second. Got to switch little windows here. Um, oh, sorry. Reading these screenshots is super, super confusing sometimes. Uh, <laughs> starts thinking of how he would impress her. Super cop. Oh. I think it, think we lost maybe a line or two there. No. Oh, there we go. No. Super cop jumping into action by gunshot. Uh, by a gunshot he leaps into action but the dream starts to spiral out of control he loses the narrative with the camouflage kid the kid and the dad stand there silently as if waiting for bobby to tell them what to do next detective jesse i love this dude magically appears as if summoned into the dream as bobby flounders the flounders the dream slips into a nightmare hence screaming lady and zombie girl contrast this with big ed like Bobby, he's at the double R with the girl he loves when suddenly the other guy shows up. Red for Bobby and whoever the other dude is. I can't remember because of my third IPA. God bless you. <laughs> Instead of trying to control the dream like Bobby, Big Ed closes his eyes and meditates. The outcome? Norma dumps the guy and falls into Big Ed's arms. Shelly, in the other hand, doesn't fall into Bobby's. What does this all mean? Fuck if I know. I do know that this is a great podcast, gentlemen. Left a five-star review on iTunes, so hopefully you're getting some attention. Also, I'm not proofreading these emails because, you know, three IPAs. Please do firewalk with me when you're done. Jeff F. 
So first of all, thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, we really, really, really do appreciate it. And mm-hmm. um, any uh, any sort of uh, feedback we, we, we just generally love, but let alone feedback like this where you are coming at us with a really awesome theory that I, I, I just, this is why I love the show because I, I agree with basically everything you said. Like it, it does, it really does sort of play out as if, Bobby is trying to control a situation that does not want to be controlled. And when he freezes up, it completely turns on him in a way that could only happen in a dream. And Bobby does react the way most of us act in our dreams, at least how I act, which is uh, you sort of just stand and witness what is happening when you can't control it. And I think Nick, you actually mentioned during the Ed and Norma scene, it does seem as if Ed is doing some sort of TM or something uh, mm-hmm. to try and try and deal with with this uh this heaviness and lo and behold look what happens with him and i think that that's that's a great read and uh and a great email thank you so much jeff mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely uh yeah thanks again for your your kinds your kind words jeff uh, we really do appreciate it and uh yeah there's a lot to be said for this notion of various characters in the return quote-unquote living inside a dream and um i would actually direct our listeners to uh, a really good youtube video about this very specific topic um it's done by a youtuber called nix fears and she does a lot of really good videos but she has a pretty good long video delving pretty explicitly into the ways in which uh, Twin Peaks characters are navigating their own personal dream throughout the season, and um, it's it's really it's really pretty good. Um, and yeah, I would encourage uh, I'd encourage you guys to check it out. Um, yeah, so yeah, not too much to add. I really like this reading of it. Uh, I really like the idea that <laughs> Ed, by by virtue of being you know uh, mindful, is able to sort of will his dream into. Uh, a positive result and that you know bobby by trying to be uh you know by big big and blustery has sort of caused his dream to become a nightmare and to uh take a twisted turn into uh as jeff calls it camouflage boy and zombie girl uh which i really enjoy let's uh name a more iconic duo than that honestly um but yeah so yeah thanks for uh thanks for writing in jeff uh, and yeah, I know we've only got uh, a couple episodes left uh, for Twin Peaks, but if you guys have any thoughts, just you know, go ahead and, and write in, and you know, if we like it, we will we'll definitely read it on the show. So uh, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>